Dopey Podcast. Dopey Podcast. Well, Dopey now podcast. is the time for the Dopey Podcast. Dopey podcast. Where you call in and Dopey put podcast. all your life on blast. And you call Dopey in podcast. and talk about your past. Because your Dopey life was furious, hardcore, and fast. So Dopey now podcast. is the time for the Dopey Podcast. It's the Dopey Podcast, the Dopey Podcast, yo. This is the Dopey Podcast. This is the Dopey Podcast. Now if your life was furious, hardcore and fast, you feel like you want to put your life on blast. Just call up the show and I talk about your past. But now is the time for the Dopey Podcast. It's the Dopey Podcast, the Dopey Podcast, yo. This is the Dopey Podcast. This is the Dopey Podcast. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our good friends at Oro Recovery. They're located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu, in Western Los Angeles. Oro was created by Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan Jared, and the other Bob. Their mission was to create a treatment that helps addicts and alcoholics by the means of compassion and connection rather than control. Their team has decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. The Oro team is known to make your stay as comfortable as possible and as hopeful as possible. We've had a lot of people go to Oro and they've only told me good things, which is the true test of any rehab facility. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. Surfing, equine therapy, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge, sound bath meditations. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get some help, I cannot suggest going to Oro enough. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Sober Buddy. What is Sober Buddy? It is an app on your phone. And right now they are doing a free trial. So go to YourSoberBuddy.com, go to the App Store, the Google Play Store, and download the Sober Buddy app. They have incredible, mindful challenges to keep you plugged into your recovery and uh, just a sense of good feeling and mindfulness. They have reasons to get sober. They have ways to stay sober. They are developing a sober buddy community that I would like all of us in the Dopey Nation to be a part of. So check them out. Check them out on social media. Go to the App Store and the Google Play Store. Get your free sober buddy trial and let sober buddy be your sober buddy. and Let them help you stay sober, get sober, and enjoy your life. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Evolution Accounting and Consulting. Do you have a business? Do you have a dream for a business? Has your dream gotten to the next level where you have to deal with taxes, bookkeeping, payroll, any of those things? If you are in that situation, you need an accountant, and I have one for you. Evolution Accounting and Consulting, their mission is to help dreamers live their dream so they can take care of the taxes, the accounting, all that shit that you don't want to do. And the best thing about Evolution is they are run by a fucking crackhead. That's right, a fucking crackhead. But he is long-term in recovery and he knows what it's like to be an addict with a business. 
Use the promo code DOPEY, that's D-O-P-E-Y, when you connect with them at www.evolution-accounting.com to receive special discounts. That is www.evolution-accounting.com. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave. I am in the Dopey studio on Long Island right now, alone, recording. And I have to say, for anyone who doesn't know, Good Morning Dopey, our deep yet shallow dive into the Daily Reflections, is over. Actually, I still haven't done October 8th. I did like 364 days of Daily Reflections a solid 150 of you guys watched, and I appreciate it. We got to thank Howard Beach Bucksbaum for everything he did on Good Morning Dopey. He was a mensch, a hard worker. He showed up even if I didn't. If you didn't watch it, I it's still on. You can watch The Daily Reflection right now. We have a daily reflection for every day except for October 8th. Look for a star-studded redo of October 8th. And also, we never aired the leap year episode. So good morning. Dopey is over. I feel really, really good about that. There's going to be some new YouTube business before we talk about anything else though. I've been remiss about the dopey candles. The dopey candles are really beautiful. We are in a collaboration with the North Avenue candle company and a dopey candle would make such a beautiful Christmas present or Hanukkah present. So go to dopeypodcast.com. Click the link for the candles. I think we're going to do a Christmas candle too. So look out for that. Still join up for YouTube because there's going to be crazy YouTube shit coming. More importantly, sign up for Patreon. I played the hidden uh, Kat Von D anti-Semitism rant. Look for Aurora to show up on Patreon to deal with the keep coming back scenario. I played a bonus episode last week about some doctors who are prescribing ketamine and mushrooms for depression. So that's a lot of stuff on Patreon. $2 gets you basically everything. $5 gets you everything and into the dopey Patreon Zoom, which we do every month. Super fun. $10 gets you into everything, gets you into the Patreon Zoom. Plus, you get a ton of stickers. $15, all that shit, plus socks. And then, you know, then there's higher tier things where you get more access and everybody wants more access. If you're a Patreon member and you haven't received any of the things you are entitled, just write me and you will get it. I promise you. Most of you got everything you want. Thank God. Christmas is coming up. I just bought Susan some My Little Pony presents. I bought her some gigantic unicorn pulled carriage Barbie stuff. I'm jumping on it early. I'm going to start a weird line of clothing for Nora for Christmas, she she calls, she came up with this phrase that she call if if she thinks somebody is cool, she calls them a devious menace. So I'm gonna create the devious menace line of clothing. So if anybody wants a devious menace T-shirt or hoodie, please write me. Designs are forthcoming, and if anybody is dying to see that fucking Dopeycon video, it is coming soon. When Howard Beach is done with this video, it will be up on Patreon. I am going to take a guess that it's up this week. 
on Patreon. DopeyCon, live in living color. Now, I, I know you guys know that uh, I love the dopey tattoo situation. There's a ton of people out there with dopey tattoos. It looks like we might be able to give away a few free tattoos. I heard from a tattoo artist in Canada who's interested in giving away a couple tattoos and another artist in San Francisco who might be interested in giving away some dopey tattoos. So if you're Canadian or Californian and you're dying for a free dopey tattoo, hit me up. I'm going to read what the, what, the Cal, what the Canadian wrote, okay? Uh, my name is Lex Gray, and I'm the owner and resident artist coordinator. Uh, my practice is called The Gray Collective. We're located in Winnipeg, Manitoba, in the shittiest, most underdeveloped neighborhood I could find. LOL. We offer scholarships for classes to learn machine learning, robotics, aesthetician services, sculpting, special effects, practical effects, sound effects, design, and whatnot. We also offer a free breakfast program and resources for sober living accommodations, help with entry into our local rehab centers, and work with our local detox center, creating safe injection and disposal sites around the city and our warehouse. I offer pay and and I offer pay what you can tattoos for folks who need the outlet because tattoos shouldn't be a luxury service especially when they, when they help so many people struggling just so you have some info on us and aren't potentially offering some insane shit I've been an addict since I was 12 had 7 years lost them started again after blowing up my face laugh my ass off whoops this is the guy who 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 He's going to send in a voicemail. All right, we have some breaking news. It turns out Lex is a woman, and she sent in a voicemail, and it's crazy. So here we go. This is Lex, the Canadian tattoo artist who is a woman in Canada on how she missed DopeyCon. And, and it's gnarly, so stand, stand fast, everybody. Hey, Dave. Hey, Dopey Nation. Uh, my name is Lex, and I'm going to tell you a quick story about how I blew up my fucking face, lost seven years of sobriety, and built my tattoo parlor somehow all in the span of uh, 10 days. So I got the keys to my tattoo parlor. I walk in. It's a complete meth dungeon. This place is uninhabitable it is fucking awful it looks like hepatitis in a room it's all it's the worst and uh so one night about seven days into the remodel i am high as balls i have been working for 30 40 hours straight at this point cocaine is keeping me going cocaine is my lord and savior at this at this exact moment and uh i climb up to the top of a 25 foot ladder i'm holding this 200 pound custom-made chandelier that is made out of chain mail and I am completely alone by myself. It is three in the morning and I get to the top of the ladder and I'm like, oh, let's just like do a quick bump. We're good. Whatever. I do a bump. I go to hang the chandelier on the hook that's hanging out of the bulkhead. And right as I go to clip the chandelier into place, boom, the hook lets loose. And I realize in that moment that there is a 30 foot flight of stairs directly beside me. And if I go over the banister, that's it, lights out, I'm done for, I'm dead. So I bear hug the chandelier and I just fucking eat it down these steps of the ladder. Every step on the way down breaks a new bone. I end up breaking, like I shatter three teeth, they just completely explode. I break my jaw in two places. And I am laying on my back on the ground, choking on my own blood. I come to, 
and I sit up, I'm holding the chandelier still, I throw it to the side, and I'm like, fuck, like, I, I fucked up, but I'm not dead, I didn't, I didn't die, I did this, hell yeah, let's go, and so I get up, I do another bump, I get in the car, and I just drive myself straight to the hospital, I get to the hospital, I walk in, and they're like, holy fuck, you look like shit. What the fuck happened? Do we need to call the police? And I am literally holding, like, holding pieces of my face together, like, while I'm talking to this nurse. And I managed to mumble out a, a vague story of what I did. They immediately bring me to the back. They inform me that my jaw is actually breaking more from an infection the longer that we're waiting. So they load me up with a shit ton of antibiotics and they go to run my blood, come back in the room. Doctor looks at me and goes, do you know how much cocaine is in your system right now? We can't put you under for surgery, but we need to do surgery right now. And I was like, oh yeah, I've been doing a shit ton of coke for like the past 10 days. Like I, at this point, I'm probably three, four grand in. Like I, I committed, I was, I threw away seven years of sobriety for this. I balls to the wall. Like, let's go, let's do it. So they end up just having me sign a bunch of paperwork telling me, like, they can't put me under because the anesthesia could kill me. Like, they don't want to take the risk. And however, if they leave it, they literally said that had I left it for more than like another eight hours, I would have been dead. The infection had spread so quickly. I was, I was at, I was knocking on death's door in m- more ways than one. And so I signed a bunch of paperwork agreeing to have the surgery done while I am awake. They do the surgery. It's the most miserable shit I have ever experienced. Don't don't do drugs at the top of ladders, folks. Uh, and yeah, so they do that. My jaw is wired shut afterwards. Um, I fucking ha- I still can't eat solid food. And uh, yeah, that is the story about how I missed DopeyCon and let everyone down. Um, I am now sober again. We are back on the sober living train. We are doing our best. We are doing the work. And uh, yeah, so that's my little story. I hope that you all stay safe and toodles for Chris. I love you guys. Have a good one. So yes, it turns out Lex is a woman from Canada, Manitoba, tattoo artist. And what a horrible, horrible story. And it all happened because of the relapse. But Lex is doing good. She's got a wire in her jaw. She's healing and she wants to give two or three Free tattoos to Dopey Nation members. They do not have to be Canadian, but it doesn't hurt if they are. If you are interested in getting a Dopey tattoo from Lex, this Dopey legend who is going to probably be on the show with insane Dopey stories, then write me at dopeypodcast at gmail.com and uh, we can get a, a Dopey tattoo on you, which is great. Now, this week on Dopey, we have an incredibly special guest, His name is Sean Weiss. If you've ever seen the Mighty Ducks Disney movie, he was in it. He was the hockey player, Greg Goldberg. And the Disney Mighty Ducks movie is a beautiful, scrappy, Bad News Bears style movie about hockey. It's a kid's movie. It's hopeful. I think a few years ago it had come out that Sean had been struggling with heroin and meth and wound up homeless. And his story is incredibly powerful. I feel incredibly fortunate to have had him at my dad's house telling his story. And he's one of, we know, new new friend of the show, new friend of mine. So here we go. Here's Sean Weiss. I am, am I 
grandfather's apartment. My guest today is actor, writer, comedian, autograph signer, hockey player, addict in recovery, person I've nudged for many, many years, Sean Weiss. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here with you in your father's apartment. Thank you. Very nice spot. It's a nice part of town, actually. Chelsea. Yeah, yeah. it's happening. I like it here. Well, there you go. You're from across the, the river? From Montville, yeah. But I live in Los Angeles now, and I, I'm not lying to you, okay? I, I haven't been here in, uh, I don't know, in Manhattan in, I don't know, probably 20 years. And when I got here out of that tunnel, it felt like I've been living on Mars, and I just got back to planet Earth. You not, felt at home when yes, you got here. Yes, exactly. It's exactly like that. Well, would you consider moving back east? I'm definitely considering it. I'm saying, man, I feel like I'm done with Los Angeles. Why? I can't, I don't know if I can, and I don't know if I can explain it. I've just been in love with that city for the longest time, ever since the first time I got there. And I don't know if that love is there anymore, dude. Like, I'm th I think I'm done with this bitch, bro. Well, you got there as a kid. Yeah. And you conquered it as a kid. I mean, yeah. you did. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And if you, right. before I even say another thing, Sean Weiss is very famous for the movie The Mighty Ducks, the series, the franchise, franchise. The Mighty Ducks. He Which you saw for the first time a couple hours ago. Today, I watched The Mighty Ducks for the first time. In 1993, I was 19. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I wasn't interested in The Mighty Ducks. And sure. I couldn't watch that movie. But I am an Emilio Estevez fan. And I am a fan... Like, you know what I didn't like about the movie? There's only one thing. I didn't like no, all No, but the, tell me. That's what I want to hear. The Keystone Cop stuff. Right. I don't know why they did that. They only did it one time. Right. But why do you think they did that? I don't know. But look, look this is going to be a helpful thing for me. Uh, all through life, people have uh, referenced the Keystone Cop thing. I don't understand. I don't know what that reference means. The people have said that before? Yeah. Like, I've heard that expression, Keystone Cops, Keystone Cops, but I don't know what it means. Okay. So, when you say that- I I'm not exactly sure I know what okay. it means, but I know what it references. Right. It's like, in silent movies, mm -hmm. they would show shit at high speed, slapstick, people- okay. Oh, the Keystone Cops, I think, were always trying to catch some oh. burglars, oh, and right. they would like go and steal bags of money- and then the Keystone Cops would chase them with the sticks and shit. I get and in the beginning of the movie, there's that scene where, like, you guys put shit in the bag and, yeah. and the guy comes after you. And that's the only scene that gets treated like that. That's funny. Yeah, okay. I totally see what you're saying. Um, yeah, no, I... I I don't know I why. It. I don't even know why I should bother you with it. Movie is beautiful. <laughs> it's an inspiring film. It is. It yeah. feels good. Yeah, yeah. My first thought, because you've been through the fucking ringer around heroin and and meth and meth. I don't get. Nobody gives me credit for being on heroin and meth. They just report the meth part. Why is that? I think because when I got caught all the time, I would get caught with meth. I never got caught with heroin, and so the police just never reported in the paper that I had heroin on me. So let's set the record straight. Yeah. What did you prefer, heroin or meth? <laughs> you know, I thought I preferred heroin, and then after about uh, twelve days in a jail cell without meth, I was like, I think I like meth better. <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> when you figured it out. Yeah, so I didn't even know what my drug of choice was. You know, that's that's crazy. I don't know. I think I'm equal parts upper downer guy, man. Depends like whatever you give me. I like uppers and I like downers and I like doing them both at the same time. I like doing them both at the same time. I did meth in LA. I was the only place I did meth and I did heroin anywhere I was. was. I was definitely a downer person. What I was going to say when I watched it, the, the thought that was in my mind is it's like, it's, it's a, tr a movie in the trope of, you know, like winning 
and like good guys pull it out and and those ragtag misfits find a way, which is something that I think all addicts can cling to the hope that we're going to get out of it, you know? And then do you think that informed your experience as a drug addict that everything will work out because you were a kid in this movie? Or am I just totally reaching with a question like that? I don't know. I don't think you're reaching. I think it's a really intelligent question, David. Give me a high five. I mean, that's pretty smart. Uh, People don't really ask me questions like that. So I'm happy to field that. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I'll tell you what it did do is like when I was out there on the street, it made like other people on the street were rooting for me. And they always were like, bro, you can get better. You're the, you're a mighty duck. Like you're the, you're a comeback kid. So it definitely was there as a source of like strength for me. Right. From other people, you know, just being, you know, so I don't know if it was, you know, if if it was my own mind, but it definitely was there as, you know, having been a part of a comeback team. Definitely, you know, surfaced. And I think addicts need that feeling that we are all, mighty ducks that we are all weirdos and fucking misfits and especially anybody who's an addict or in recovery when's the first time you did any drug uh you any drug like pot or alcohol well i started uh, i guess the first time i smoked weed was probably uh, 13 or 14 and it was on a movie set and what movie was it uh i don't Okay, it's, it's very obvious to figure it out, but I don't want to say because then it'll be really obvious who it was that gave it to me. <laughs> but it was, it was one of those Disney movies, and I was 13. But yeah, it was one of the you know guys who worked on the movie gave it to me. So definitely that was, it gave me access. He was know? an actor? No, it was not an actor. Yeah, it was one of the crew guys. And that was always part of like the fun when I was younger is like, getting on a movie set and figuring out who the cool guys were that I, that I was going to be able to get drugs and cigarettes from. It always take me about a week to figure out like which grips were cool or, <laughs> or which construction guys would be cool enough to like slip me some weed. That was part of the process. But getting back to your, like the, just the theme of your, of your question. When I was out there, I had it in my mind that I was going to die and I was okay with that. And I was kind of just like in this long version of suicide where I'm just enjoying getting high in the meantime, but I thought the finish line was death. So I didn't have any visions of hope or recovery or, you know, that was not a possibility for me. I just thought I was going to die. Well, I, let's circle back because I want to I get how we go from, you were 11 when you got the Mighty Ducks? I was 13, I think. You were 11 when you started doing TV? I was TV? six when six. I started doing that stuff. And I was very successful right off the bat. So right when I was six, I really... I started doing commercials and I never really stopped until I was like 17 or 18. I never had like more than a few months off. It seems like uh, the child actor thing is such a heavy burden for, for so many kids. Like I've had yeah. a bunch of people on the show that were really successful young and then fucking hell breaks you know, through or whatever. I've thought about it a lot. I've had, a, I've had over a thousand hours of therapy in the, at this point. And I think really what, what it is, is when you, when you start being the, the breadwinner of the household, it becomes very hard to discipline a child when he's like making the money. And that's really what happened to me. My parents just when I started, I was working and I was like, uh, you know, an independent adult financially by the time I was eight or nine. It was just very hard for them to discipline. And that's really, I think, when I started smoking pot and drinking and stuff like that, they just, 
they basically looked the other way. And I think that's what happens with, with child actors. They get exposed to that. They have the money. They have the, the access point, And their parents just can't tell them no. Do you remember the feeling of being a child and thinking you were in control? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. How, what was your relationship like with your folks? Like, how, how difficult was that for them? Or were they just so excited that you were winning? It was that. I mean, my dad was at work all the time. He, he uh, ran a dry cleaners. And he was so proud of me. Like, like he was the kind of guy when he would see me on TV, he would just start crying. Right. That's beautiful. Yeah, he's that kind of guy. He, was, he took so much joy in my success. And then he was at work. So he would just, you know, pop in, give me a hug, tell me fantastic. And then he'd be back at work. And my mother was the, like the opposite of a stage mom. She never ran lines with me, not one time. She never was on set. She was always in the background. But her thing was she had a gambling problem. So, you know, she very quietly was using the money I was making to gamble. And I think to not draw attention to her own issue issues, right, she would not bust my balls. Right. She was like, you do your thing and I'll do as my, long as I can that's do really my thing. what the fuck happened. I read about your mom a little bit about uh, her in Vegas, but I didn't even, it didn't even click in my mind that she might be gambling in Vegas. Right. So, you know? Well, it didn't even click in my mind either. I was like, I remember being 12 or 13 and getting uh, tickets to like Mike Tyson fights in the mail. Like, dear Lottie, that was her name. We'd like to welcome you to Caesar's Palace this weekend for the Mike Tyson fight. And I'm like, who the fuck is this bitch? How is she getting uh, tickets to the Tyson fight? Now I know. Because she was so spending was, money yeah, in the she casino. Was a good customer. Right. Yeah. The, the whale or whatever the thing yeah, is. Yeah, she's one of those. And you were, you were supporting her gambling addiction. And my dad had a business, so she was kind of double dipping. Double dipping. Yeah. My and dad estimates that over a course of 15 years, my mother gambled seven, lost $7 million. Wow. That's did she ever, did number. she ever, and do you resent her because it was a bunch of it was no, your money? No, I don't. Good for you. That's good. You just, when you said that, you gave me the cutest smile. People can't see, but you were like, good for you. And I could tell that it warmed your heart to, to know that I don't hate my mom. Listen, resentment is a difficult thing, <laughs> it right? Is. Yeah, it's a bit. And like the fact that I could hear you say it, I could see it on you, that yeah. it wasn't the thing, like, fuck it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's way easier than Definitely. being like, I fucking, and your mom passed. Right. So it's like to have a resentment against it someone who's suck. not here is not... Suck. It's not the easiest thing. You know, I, I guess I had a lot of resentments and maybe we'll, we'll get into that. But the 12 steps really changed the way I frame my life and changed the way I look at things. And definitely working steps got me to a much healthier place in terms of how I view things that happened to me in my past. Did your mom have a big space in your fourth step? No, not really. You know, I... When it comes to money, my mom put in a lot of work to get me those jobs. That, you know? I read that you considered your mother to be as important to your success as yourself. Yes, definitely. So she deserved half of it. That's really how I felt, you know? Well, I appreciate that. She, could have, she probably could have gone about things, you know, in a much more professional way. But she was also new to this, too, you know? She didn't really know what to do. And here's the, the, the thing that happens, and it's a dangerous kind of vortex. And I think it happens, and it's dangerous. We all assume that this success is not going to end. Right. So when you're spending your kid's money and you're thinking, well, he's just getting warmed up. He's on path to be a fucking millionaire. Right. Nobody's going to even notice this stuff is gone. Right. 
So it becomes a lot less sinister when you think about it in those terms, you know? No, it's, it's, it's one of those things. I always, you always think nothing is going to end. And, and even using, like when you're using, you feel like it will last. Did your mom ever get out of her addiction? No. So, I mean, like, that's the other thing. She was sick and suffering. She was in addiction when it was happening. Yeah. She was such an addict for slots that she had a laptop with a slot machine on it. And she would just, it would be 24-7. I don't care where she was. She'd bring this laptop with her. And she would just be with one with her right hand, just playing slots with her fucking wow. hand, dude. She was that. So when you say suffering in, an, in addiction, she was definitely suffering. How much is each slot? Like, I've never... I don't know. Like, in real life, yeah. I think she was playing dollar machines. That's crazy. And she's playing, like, two or three machines simultaneously. Right. Fucked up. She would go to Vegas when I was young, right? Okay, so first time I ordered a prostitute, I think I was 11. No way. Yeah, because we went to Las Vegas, and she left me in the hotel room. And she's like, I'll be back at 4 in the morning or whatever. And she left me there for 8 or 9 hours. And I found a flyer on the ground for this... Escort. Escort. That sounds so much better than prostitute. No, they both sound okay. They sound okay. Okay, so I found uh, the thing for this escort, and I invited her to the room. Yeah. And I had $100 cash on me, and I thought that was going to get me the works, and I'd get change. You know what I mean? I didn't understand how it worked. Here's your change. Right. (laughs) Thank you. Here's your change. So she showed up, and uh, I don't know how much of this story I should get into, but, you know. No, this is good. Yeah, so she just showed up, and uh, she was shocked. She was looking around the room and she's like, who am I here for? And I'm like, me. <laughs> and uh, she saw my mom's nightgown on the bed and she's like, whose is that? And I'm like, my mom's. And she's looking around and she's like, Psst. and she's like, sweetie, uh, she took my money first. And then she's like, you're a little too young for this. Um, and then she said, call me when you're 15. <laughs> and she took your money and left? She took my money, got naked, did a little dance for me, uh, let me touch her nipple and then left and said, call me when you're 15. And you hadn't done, had you drank at that point? No, I don't think I never. And you hadn't done any drugs? No, no, no. But you were like, I'm going to call an escort. Yeah, I'm going to get laid. All right. Yeah. And, but you didn't get laid and she was out. Right. And it was. But I definitely, I was definitely some masturbation material for the next. Yeah. It's good. Until we, a week ago. It's an investment. For sure. Yeah. So that hundred dollars went to distance. Can you still imagine this? I can, I can smell her when I close my eyes. It's funny how that goes. There's so many things we forget. And then there are so many things we remember. (laughs) It's interesting. And you know what? I've, I've, I've gone around different shopping malls in the last 30 years and I'm almost positive uh, it was Chanel number five that she was wearing. Because it can trigger it. It's funny. Yeah. It's so funny. <laughs> and and it's and where is she? She's probably listening that to would, Dopey someplace. That would be amazing. Hanging out. Yeah, that would she's be like, I remember that 11-year-old. Yeah. Boy. Wouldn't that be crazy if like she eventually went on to like see the Mighty Ducks and she's like, was that the kid that tried You to- know she saw the Mighty Ducks. <laughs> Let's get, when did you first get high? Uh, I'm ruining the show. Like on some weed you're talking about? Yeah, you said 14. Yeah, I guess I was 13 or 14. Were you like, I love this? This is what I want to be? No, it wasn't like that. I think it was, uh, was it made me a little nervous at first because I got really stoned. Yeah. Like, you know, when you, like, you take your first bong hit. And then I went to work the next day and I was fucked up all the next, like, I know exactly what scene in the movie it was too. I can watch it and be like, I'm high right there. I had to go to the work the next day. Luckily, I didn't have any dialogue. But it really screwed me up because I was, like, incapacitated at work. You know what I mean? I couldn't really function. Was it enough to dissuade me from ever doing it again? I guess not. Like, that's what I've noticed that about myself, too. Like, all my addictions never came easily from even just, like, cigarettes. 
first cigarette I took made me nauseous. Me Second too. cigarette made me throw up and it got worse and worse. And so I literally had to force myself to get addicted to cigarettes. And except for meth and heroin, it, it's been like that with like weed or alcohol. Heroin, the first time I did it, I didn't like it. I thought it was too much. I remember telling yeah, people it was too people, much. Usually when that happens to people, they don't do heroin. I know. I, it's like it's, It made you nauseous? I threw up. I like went down real fast. I, 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 I hooked up with some girl I didn't want to hook up with. I, I woke up in a weird place. And, uh, and then I didn't, and I was like, and I loved weed and I was like, I just want to do weed. And then, um, it was years later that I was in a situation where heroin was available. How did you do it the first time? Uh, No, I snorted it. I snorted it the first time and I snorted it for years, uh, before I ever shot it. When was the first time you did Coke? Uh, You know, a line here or there at like a party. To be I think that I, I young. think somebody handed me a, one of those snifters one time at a party in L.A., probably about Wait, what's 20, a snifter? 21. Those little tiny little vials. You just screw it on the top of the vial, and you can just put it in your nose. I never got to use one of those in my life. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Oh, those, were, those were a lot of fun. So I mean, you don't want to, like, share them with people and don't use it, like, if you have the flu. Especially in COVID. Sure. Yeah, it's a bad COVID device. But you are fucking young. You, you're, you, 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 Mighty Ducks is 13. You know, when was Mighty Ducks 2 and 3? 15 and 16. Right. So, like, that, it's weird that that portion of your life was, like, you were making crazy money, you're super young, and the promise of future riches and fame feels very much at hand. Yeah, I mean, it was it was just inevitable. And I didn't even, I felt like I would made it. I you did. Like, yeah, you I mean, I wasn't, it. like, trying to get to be a bigger celebrity. I was, like, you know, I was living the life. It was fantastic. You had made it though, yeah. and then after that, what happens? Like, when does when does drug addiction kick in, and 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 what's going on with your work? And did drug addiction contribute to acting not happening the way you wanted it to? Really, what happened was I, uh, I guess I was about twenty, and I had never had a real girlfriend. I'd had relationships, and I maybe had a girlfriend in high school, an escort here or there, an escort. <laughs> But nothing serious, you know? Uh-huh. Um, and then I met a girl and fell in love. And I was 20, and I moved her into my apartment. And I didn't leave my apartment for like six months. I was just so... I got addicted to... Sex and love. Sex and love. and Being taken care of. All of it. Yeah. And it felt so good. I'd never had that. And I literally stopped answering my agent's phone calls. Were you using them? No. I was drinking a lot, and I was smoking a lot of weed. But I was not using it. I'd never done a pill or anything. Were you guys like stoners at home? Like just wasted? Yeah, we were just home, fucking sucking, smoking a water bong, and getting pizzas delivered. Watching movies. For six months. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Not even different movies, like the same movie. Yeah, yeah. What what movies were you watching about Um, Tango and Cash was a big one. (laughs) I don't know why. That's such a horrible movie. The uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy. Sure. That played on repeat. Yes. And... (laughs) And, you know, to the point, I didn't leave my room for six months to the point where my dad came and he was like, we got to get you a psychologist or something. It's not normal. And what about the woman? She was just like, bring me more stuff. Because she had also never had like a guy that was driving a BMW and stuff. And I think she was kind of. <laughs> she was taken with the, the being taken care of. Yes. In all aspects of it. Definitely. You had money. Were. You had clout. You had access to as much weed and pizza and good times right. without it fucking you up kind right. of thing. And I was funny. She liked that too. 
Is now a good time to talk about my huge cock or no? Is I think this is the time. I don't. I wish I did. Um, I was, I was, I was I, ready. I was ready for a real, <laughs> no, I do have a, a right, seismic right. shift in it's the conversation. Huge. It's just gigantic. I just feel bad about talking about it because then people will think like, well, if he's talking about it, then he doesn't really. So I understand. But anyway, um, now I'm, now I'm just thinking about how big now, is your dick. Well, my, we don't need We're gonna to, have we, to go in the back. And we don't, we don't need to talk about how this big. just got so gay. I'm sorry. It's dude. okay. It's okay. Um, I've been in Los Angeles for like a long time. You, you understand this is not even, this is just. This is how they talk. Yeah, in Los like Angeles. in LA, if you're not bi, you're not woke. Well, there you go. Okay, but um, you were talking so, about living with your girlfriend right. in the stoner drinking pizza days, right? So I stopped uh, answering my agent's phone calls, and you know, six months, seven months went on, and it got to a point where they started telling me, like, "Bro, this is not cool." Like, that's one thing you can't do in Hollywood is just blow people off because it's disrespectful. You know, you gotta you can show up drunk and high. But you can't miss an opportunity. And you can't not show up and no call, no show. That just shit doesn't fly. I don't care who you are. Well, you know, maybe there's some exceptions. But I was doing that. And I was just leaving shit stains all over Los Angeles. And my agent had to talk with me. He's like, dude, you are at the limit right now where I, we're not going to work with you anymore. And that's you where you're like, it. that's where alcoholism is showing its face. Yes, because it, it, I'm not going back to work. I'm staying holed up in the room with the weed and the alcohol and the girl and the sex. And it's just a, a fester, festering of addiction. And, you know, it's funny, though, because you're young and the consequences aren't homelessness, joblessness, broke. Right. But it's the seed of right. the ism. Right. Yeah. It's like, why aren't you fucking answering the agent's call? Because you're an alcoholic, not because you can't. Exactly. It's interesting, though. Exactly. I, I can relate. Like I, I did stuff like that before I was ever addicted. You know what I mean? Where I just yeah. couldn't be bothered. But it wasn't like I felt above it. I just couldn't figure out how to answer the phone or well, do it. Sometimes it's hard to just be reliable. You know what I mean? You just have to flip a switch within yourself to have some integrity sometimes and just show up and do shit that you don't want to do. Yeah, definitely. Nowadays, I'm like, it's hard for me not to do it because I'm so conditioned to doing it, mm -hmm. especially with kids and stuff. It's like, if I don't do it, things go wrong. Right. And then I can't handle looking at them if things are going wrong. Sure. Yeah. You can't look at your hungry, hungry kids and have, and be okay with the fact that daddy didn't feel like stopping at the store. Whatever. Yeah. But we've, we've been there, right. but I don't, I, it's not, it's not a good place to be, but let's get back to your story. <laughs> You're like, they're at home right now waiting. Yeah, I was supposed to bring home cereal last night. I totally <laughs> forgot. They're starving. I want to know, like, what happens there? Like, I, I know that you're, we have this in common that both of our drug addiction was really, mine was cemented by a heartbreak too. And and you were 20? No, this didn't happen until I was 36. That when Oh, I, that, that future heartbreak. Right. So right. tell me about 20 to 36 then. <laughs> well, you know, so... I got in this area where my agents were warning me, you know, and honestly, man, I'd been working since I was six years old. I didn't really give a fuck. I you had it. Yeah, I had money. I'd never really had a chance to relax before. And I sort of took a, a self-imposed sabbatical. Sure. You know, and the problem is in Hollywood, you can't really do that because it's all about your go, go, go. Who's hot, right? It's all about trends. So I was trending. And I walked away from it. And I didn't even attempt to start trying to get back into the, into the entertainment business for probably two or three years. So I just went. For you lived years. off You lived off the money. Yeah, I was living off my savings. And I was with this girl. And I ended up 
butchering that relationship to turn into a living hell. So yeah, there was that. So about, I guess I was about, you know, from 20 to 30, I was surviving on guest starring jobs. like All that. those TV gigs, yeah, Boy Meets World. King and of Queens, stuff yeah, like yeah. that. And I landed a couple commercials, but my, you know, trouble with addiction was starting to show its face. I had never been fired, but I had one job that I got fired from because I showed up. It was this commercial where, it was Wendy's commercial, and they wanted to ha- put me in a chicken suit and hang me from, like, the ceiling in, like, a body harness. Okay. So I showed up to work, and they put me up on this body harness, and I was about, I, I was about to die up there. And I was like, you guys got to put me down. I can't fucking, you know? I'm like, if we're going to do this, you got to say, rolling, you got to put me up on the roof. And you say cut, and you got to take me down. You can't leave me up there. I can't dangle. Yeah, while you guys are fixing lights and shit. And so they're like, okay, no problem, no problem. So they did it, action, they put me up there, and they let me dangle, Dave. And I was up there, and I remember being in that suit, sweating bullets in a chicken suit, and I'm yelling, get me the fuck down from here in a chicken suit. Probably one of my low points as, a, as, a, as an actor. As an actor, and I, uh, I left the set. I went across the street to a liquor store and bought two mini shots in a chicken suit. Right. Imagine seeing that guy. Right. And chugged him right there. So. Well, it's like the Artie Lang uh, babe it, it, story. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's yeah. one of the funniest stories ever. Yeah, that's my version of that story. So I'd gotten fired from that job. My agent called me. Hold on. Do you remember being in the chicken suit? Did anything yeah. happen at the liquor store? Was, was, it, was it a moment? Or? Yeah, I mean, dude, I've gone on to like, you know, I've written scenes about that and put that in like shows already. But yeah, I mean... I felt bad because I felt like I was betraying the ducks. Because, because you were a bird of a feather. Right. I understand. You get me. Thank you, Dave. Let me ask you this, though. It's like you had success, like, beyond most anyone's whole life success at such an early age. You're kind of at the at the slim pickings phase in, in your 20s, which it's still more success than I had or, or most people had. At what point does the specter of the drug addict, meaning like some idea in your head of like, who's a drunk, who's a drug addict, like I'm living like, like, like Artie Lang, like you hear that story and you're like, oh shit, that's kind of cool and dangerous. Or did you have that in your head at that point? I always just looked down on people that did drugs. You know, when I went to school, we did the D.A.R.E. program. Sure. And it was all just about say no to drugs and junkies are or bad, and, you know, so I never identified with that. I couldn't understand how somebody would let themselves get Go. into that situation. And it was just never in my orbit, hard drugs. I never, I never was around it. So it was just like, uh, it was like a, a UFO to me. I just never saw one in person. And when you're buying the shots in the chicken costume, like, were you like, fuck? Or were you like, no, I need a fucking drink if they're going to dangle me in the Wendy's commercial? I think at that point I knew that it was bad that I'd showed up all hungover. I knew that. And I knew that if I wasn't hungover, I would have been able to muscle through and I would have done the job. But I, because I was so sick, I physically couldn't do it. I would have vomited all over that set if they, if they didn't get me down from there. So I knew at that point that, you know. Were you profoundly if, alcoholic at that point? Not at that point. When my mother died, I picked up a fifth of vodka and I got drunk and I stayed drunk for three years. When did your mom die? 2008. So I had been a couple years removed from, you know, the steady work. What were you doing for work? Uh, you know, just like we've talked about, just, just gigs here and there and commercials and stuff. So the work was drying up. I wasn't 
going out for movie parts and I wasn't doing series regular roles. And she died and I got depressed and I started, I started, alcohol really was the only way I managed to get through that time, I guess. So I stayed drunk for three years until one day I had pickled my inside so bad that I couldn't move. I couldn't even swallow water is how bad it, my throat, my esophagus hurt. And so I was just like staying in the hot shower just for like to survive. I, literally minute to minute was painful. And it was, I, I, I couldn't be like this because I had to take care of my dad who had like doctor's appointments and shit. And your dad was diabetic? He was diabetic. He was at the time like 76 or 77. And he you're fucked. Care. You're fucked. I'm on the floor in the fetal position because I pickled my insides, literally. And so I saw a bottle of Vicodin and I'd never really fucked with painkillers, but I took a couple of Vicodin and all of a sudden I could stand up and take my dad to his appointment. It's crazy how slow moving your addiction was. Yeah. You know, it was your alcoholism and your addiction was very slow moving. Yeah. I mean, I'd say that I didn't really hit the skids till I was 36, but you're right. It is a slow. Very thing. slow. I mean, right. the escort at 11, you'd think you'd be shooting coke at 15, but right. it's a long way. <laughs> it's a long I see your way. Point. Yeah. yeah you're right. You know, because like you're, you're in your 30s when you're, when you're really full blown alcoholic. Yeah. You know, and you see the Vicodins and you're in pain and you're like. What? So I, I took the Vicodins and I loved the opiate buzz way better than alcohol. Alcohol sure. had gotten to a point where I, I wasn't enjoying that shit anymore at all. And so uh, the opiates worked, took the pain away. And I couldn't, I didn't want to drink on the opiates because then I couldn't feel the opiates. So that was how I quit alcohol, literally cold turkey. When I found that bottle of Vicodin, I don't, to this day, I've probably had three or four sips of alcohol since I, the day I've found that Vicodin from full blown 12 pack of beer a day plus a fifth of vodka a day. Do you remember thinking about that? Because you, you were consuming a shitload of alcohol when you start taking Vicodins where you're like, wow, I'm not even drinking anymore. Yeah. You oh, sure. Yeah. I'm like, this is great. I found now I know how to quit alcohol. I got to get this over to the AA people. They're going to love They're going to love this, gonna love this exactly. down, down at the program. <laughs> That's funny. So, so you, you, and you never drank again, even with all no. the meth and whatever. Nope, never. Okay. So how does the, what, tell us about what happened. It, I think the, the way the, the, uh, the alcohol pickled me, it uh, flipped the switch in my brain that made me repulsed by alcohol. Cause literally even the smell of it now, I can't stand it. And I used to love like a good scotch or, you know, so yeah, I think because I got so sick, my consequence, I just hit rock bottom. I want to hear about post Vicodin. So where well, are you living at that point? I'm out in LA. And where's your dad? And uh, he's living with me. We, okay. We, we were always together. My, I was living with my mom and dad. She died. So now it was me and my dad just together. And I had a living girlfriend, different girl. So you live with your parents very pretty, similar. pretty for a while. Yeah. I, always. Why? Until my dad died. I, well, I felt like I had to take care of them. And you, and you didn't want to take care of them away from them. Uh, like you didn't want to just give them money. You wanted to be in the family unit. You, you know, never even, I never even thought about it. I stopped living here when I was, my mom was like, what did she say? At, at 18, I think she was, I don't think she said, I don't know. She just said I, I had to do college and then they weren't going to pay. I had to do college in four years and then I was on my own. But when I left here, when I was 17 or 18, I never wanted to come back. And I came back when I was 35 because I was fucked. But I couldn't live here. I couldn't be with with them. 
And I mean, I like, I like my parents. I love my parents. But you can't live. I couldn't do it. And I think a lot of the reason why I couldn't do it was because I was so committed to getting high Mm -hmm. and I couldn't get high at home. How did you deal with that living with your parents? Well, I had uh, uh, separate spaces all the time. I was upstairs and they were downstairs. So that's how I did it. And you were the boss from from eight. Yeah. So it's like what it's like they couldn't really tell you. Right. And also it hadn't become by the time it had become unmanageable. My mother had died. If she was alive, this never would have happened at all. And when my dad died, then I really just had nobody to be accountable for. Well, you had also been so conditioned to being in this living situation with your parents that when they were gone, you were alone. And that must yeah. have been so traumatizing. I agree. Yeah, it was. Because they were they were everything. You were with yeah. them. And also, my dad was my best friend, and I didn't know that. And, and I never got a chance to tell him that. But I, you know, I didn't realize. I just thought he was my dad. Only when he died did I think to myself, I just lost my best friend. Do you think your relationship with your parents kept you from making other good friendships? No. Because it's interesting. Like, I have another friend who is an actor, and he was really tight with his parents. I don't know. Like, I I don't know why I'm I'm connecting the dots. Well, my mom never liked any girl that I brought home. I think she wanted to be the queen in my life. Sure. So she made it very difficult for me. And it really did create trouble in a sense that, so this first uh, relationship I'm telling about where I ended up holed up in my room, I kind of got conditioned to be like that because my mom didn't want this girl there. So I had to like sneak her in and out. I didn't even realize that you and the girl were living with your parents. Right. Yeah. We're living with the parents, with See, my parents downstairs and they're upstairs. So my mom doesn't like the girl. So I literally to the point where she would like chase this girl with a knife one time. Wow. So I would sneak this girl in and out of my house. I was going to ask why the did the trunk. girl leave, but now I kind of have an idea of what happened. I would sneak her in and out of my apartment in the trunk of my BMW. Wow. She'd be in the trunk, we'd drive in the garage, and she'd hop out of the trunk. See, I think it's odd that you wanted to live with your parents that long. I don't think I did. They just never moved out, and I wasn't like, are you motherfuckers going to leave? Do you know what I mean? And so... I think it's interesting. Don't. Why do you think it was? Why didn't you move out? I think this is an important point, Sean. I think you're right. Why I, didn't you move out? I, don't, I guess you're right. I never was willing to, like... I've never thought about it. this. is the first time I'm dealing with it and saying I'm, it. I apologize for no, putting it's okay. You on I'm the just spot. saying it's, this is not like something I've thought I've thought about before. But I guess I was hesitant to leave the nest. Right, and you were. I and, had a certain security there with them. Well, it's, that I that I didn't want to give up. And I'm sure it's connected to being an eight year old breadwinner. Because if you're an eight year old breadwinner when you're a 28 year old breadwinner or, or earning less bread there's something weirdly broken in the dynamic because the dynamic got broken when you were a little kid. Sure, yeah. And it's just like an unnatural progression. It's it's really interesting. So your dad dies, and I'm sorry about your dad's death, and it's very beautiful that uh, your dad was your best friend. I'm very close yeah, with my we dad, too. Yeah, we were watching too. the Dodgers game like we always did. We were watching the Dodgers game, eating a pizza, and having a, a nice afternoon. And I went to use the restroom and I came back and he had passed away. He was just laying there on the bed. Oh my with God. With a peaceful look on his face. So what did you do? Uh, just called the ambulance and called my friend and my girlfriend. They calmly and discreetly came and packed him up. And, and how soon after were you grabbing pills? I had, not, I had quit pills by that time. I went to rehab. Judd Apatow put me in a in a rehab place. You know that guy, right? 
I do. I, I, I'm, I have mixed feelings about Judd Apatow. When was the first rehab? How did? Wh where was the pills? What movie did you work on with Judd Apatow? Oh, Freaks and Geeks. Freaks and Geeks. Well, I, he did heavyweights. That's where I met him. Right. And uh, so he put me on Freaks and Geeks just to kind of give me a job. But I wasn't a freak or a geek. And uh, my manager advised me to quit that show. So, so I did. So what? when was the first rehab? I mean, first of all, I just want to say, though, my issue, I have a bunch of issues with Judd Apatow, nothing personally, except mm -hmm. that he rejected doing, somebody wanted to adapt Dopey into a movie and he turned it down. But forget that. I find that he objectifies addicts in a lot of things he does. I found that he objectified Artie Lang in Crash, you know, that show with... Uh, I don't know what the guy's name, the um, comedian. Yeah, I, uh, I, I didn't see that episode. He objectified Andy Dick in love. I just feel like mm. he doesn't have a good handle on, on actors that are using on his set. From, from, from you know, just a, an armchair sure. viewer, whatever. So, so when did you get into this, uh, into rehab? Because we're missing a big thing here. So, yeah, I, I was, uh, my mom dies, alcohol. Alcohol pickles my insides, then pills, right? And so now it's just me, my dad in this apartment, and things are getting scarce, right? Money is pretty much gone. I'm having to struggle to make rent every month. And how are you getting the pills? Ugh, bro, like the hard way. I had three or four doctors I was using. I was going to different emergency rooms. I didn't have a dealer. They were all prescribed. I was going to emergency rooms. And my dad was helping me get pills because he knew I was addicted. When did you first know you were addicted? <laughs> uh, you know, when I was, when I drove to the 37th CVS looking for OxyContin. <laughs> because you described yourself as somebody raised with dare, raised yeah. to look down on addicts or whatever. When did you find yourself, holy shit, I am this thing? And what changed in your mind around well, it? Well, you know, it was the, during the alcoholism, I... Knew then that it was, you know, I had a it serious problem. Yeah, yes. And my girlfriend at the time left me because of it. Right. I couldn't take the alcohol. And, and I couldn't, I woke up, I vomited, I drank, and that's how I woke up every morning. I would wake up and vomit. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening have that exact experience. It was horrible, man. It was horrible. And I did that for over a year. So I was just living that miserable existence. And a couple things happened. Mike Pena, super popular actor, Got me an incredible opportunity to write. I'm a writer. Write a comedy movie for Paramount. And I went into the pitch meeting and I fucking blew it, bro. I started shaking like a leaf and talking gibberish and not making sense. And I'm the guy that was pitching the movie. So that opportunity went, you know, in yeah. the garbage. And that could have been huge. Does that it keep you up still, that, that story? Not still, but it did for a while. Okay. It, because it killed my relationship with Mike, like, in that way. He would never, ever again call me for something like that. And, yeah, that was one of my, you know, bigger flub-ups professionally. So now it got to a point where I lost my apartment. And me and my dad are now homeless. I rented a room somewhere. And the guy that was the uh, landlord of the room I rented knew I needed help, tried to help me, couldn't, and knew that I looked up to Apito. And so he contacted Apito and Hold said- Hold on, though. Before we get there, what happened to your dad's dry cleaning business? He sold that and uh, moved to Los Angeles. I came out here to do a pilot, right? The pilot got picked up. And without knowing, my mom sold our house- Packed up all our shit and and he sold the business. Yeah, to live basically off of you. To live in Los Angeles, 
His, he thought he was going to get a million dollars for his business. But he had a dry cleaning business. And the town found some kind of contamination underneath the ground of his business. So the million dollars he'd worked for his whole life and thought he was going to be able to retire to went in cleanup fees. Did he regret selling the business? I'm sure he did. Did he ever say to you, I can't believe I did this? And no, myself- because he wasn't that kind of person. But I'm sure he did. Right. Yeah. So when he's living in your place and living you know, off of you. And I don't, he had his retirement. Okay. Okay. So when you lose the place, like what was your dad saying? Yeah, honestly, that is probably the most traumatic portion of this whole thing for me is imagining what my dad went through at that time. Cause I don't know what he was thinking. And he didn't, he didn't talk to me about it. He, He never brought it. He didn't confront me. And he saw me that I'm homeless. He knows that he knows it's affecting me that I can't put a roof over his head, but he he did he he didn't when I spoke to him he was just in a good mood and he was staying at a you know if you're a senior citizen they have like a, a, sort of like a nursing home temporary nursing home that he was staying in and I would go visit assisted him every living day. or senior exactly. housing or whatever yeah and I'd show up to visit him every day and he would just be happy to see me and I'd stay and visit and then I'd go get high. Well, I mean, it also wasn't. Like, I just, I never do this kind of thing, but it wasn't on you to put a roof over your father's head. You know what I mean? Like, you couldn't do it, and you had been able to support however much of your family that you had. It's, you know, I appreciate you saying that, but in real in real time, it's hard to make that a reality for yourself, you know? It's like, you know, you know what I mean? Of course. It felt like it was, and, and looking back, it was. I mean, I, I... Well, you were also an addict, using, like, fucked. Yeah, but I never told him... Look, Dad, I'm not going to be able to take care of you, so figure your own stuff out, okay? I never had that conversation with him. So this was my, I saw it as my responsibility. And it broke my heart, and it definitely was part of the immense psychological pain that made it okay for me when I started doing meth and didn't stop. Because this was was really eating me up. Well, there was also just a total lack of communication, I think, because your dad knew your pill situation you said he helped you he was helping me get get through it so he knew where you were at yeah even if he might not have been totally familiar with the ins and outs of being a drug addict he knew what was going on. he knew what was going on and you knew what was going on but you're not like dad i'm fucked i can't take care of you and he's not like i wish i hadn't sold the business which are things in retrospect you wish you could have said sure but we were i don't know if you understand that this type of closeness but we were close to these things. We didn't have to say these things. You know, we we communicated being in the room. We could look at each other and, and understand the reality of our situation. So we didn't have to say these things. So when you get the apartment, and, and I, listen, I appreciate you talking about this stuff. And if it is too painful to talk about, we can move past it. Okay. We can move through it. Okay. And, um, and the fact that you're sober and in recovery is in a living amendment. You know what I'm saying? Yes, you I see, are I see it like that. You're doing what's necessary now. And there's nothing we can do to change the shit that we did. That's right. You know, like my dad was was cleaning. I had an apartment down the street. My dad was cleaning out the apartment, weeping, sure that I was going to be dead. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's like and my mom died um, when I was 35 and, and I and I stole the pills from her and right in the room over there as soon as she died. Like, so I understand, like, this kind of pain and shame around addiction. So, like, you, you're not alone. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're, you're, you didn't just show up at this place and, 
you know, we, we've all done like shit that we wish we hadn't done and we wish things went differently and things can still go differently. You know, they can go a million different ways. I just want to hear about what happened. You know what I mean? Okay, so... You know what I mean. I, I don't... Yeah, I, I'm about to... You know, it's, it is a long story. You know, unfortunately, you're dude, getting there. <laughs> listen, if, if, if you have to tell a long story to go from being a, a six-year-old TV actor to a... a, 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 a homeless a, junkie a, a homeless on the street. homeless junkie on the street. <laughs> well, that's what we're here for. So, um, so I went to rehab. I got cured of the pills. I really did. I, I was in like a rut. And I think a lot of my addiction just comes from purely getting in a habit of doing something. I'm a real creature of habit. Yes. And I'll just get in modes where I'm on cruise control, wake up in the morning and start certain behaviors. And I'm not even consciously living, you know what I mean? For months at a time, I'll just be doing, you know, going through the same routine. So I had broken the, that chain of addiction with the pills Things were looking good. I was rebuilding myself for a long time, for about three or four years. You were clean. I was getting clean. So Judd, and, and how did Judd intercede with the whole thing? Well, he got put me in the rehab. And, and then he put you to work afterwards. Yeah. And he, he started giving me work. So he was really trying to help me. <laughs> so I was really trying to get better for a long time. I didn't want to be on camera again. I never saw myself ever being back on television and movies. Even if somebody brought out like a cell phone, I would have like hide from the lens. I wouldn't even let somebody take a video. Just self hatred. Self, exactly. And I thought it was ugly and all. I still feel like that. Me too, a little bit, you know. So I met another girl. I've had a lot of wonderful girls come into my life to like really help me out. And this girl like helped me restore my own sense of confidence to where I got back to believing in myself as a performer and entertainer again. And I had confidence and now I'm funny again and I wanted to be back on camera. So over the next two or three years, I built a movie crew and this project and a team. And we were working on this TV show that everyone was certain we were going to sell to like HBO or some kind of venue. We're all going to make a lot of money. We had uh, a legit agency repping us. So and the concept was your recovery, right? No, the concept was more of just like uh, it was like my version of like a, a curb your enthusiasm. Right. And I'm sure there was episodes about pills. Sure. Absolutely. But also like the, the comeback of a child star that was built into it. Definitely. Absolutely. Okay. So I'm gearing up to do this thing. Got this, another woman that I'm in love with and I'm going to marry her. I mean, this is the one like, sure. You know, sent from heaven. And you're uh, like in your mid thirties. I'm 35, 36. Sure. My producer and best friend came out of pocket, like almost a hundred thousand dollars on this project we're working on. We were staying in this penthouse apartment in L.A. And we're producing this thing. And life was fantastic. My dad was living there with us. So I really had it fantastic. And then all of a sudden, within less than 60 days, my dad died. We got news that this project we were working on and our agency, that it wasn't going to go. That had fallen through. So all this work that 30 people had done for the last two years for me, that I had promised them. It would work out. Right. Now I had failed them. And yourself. And myself, of course. And this thing deserved to go. It deserved to be good. And I got fucked on like some personal shit. You know what I mean? What was that? Just somebody didn't like me. You know, that's how Hollywood is. It's about who you know. And if you know somebody that doesn't like you, you're not getting in. So it wasn't, it got rejected, not based on the merit of the actual project or the quality of the project. And that hurt too, because we made something good. So you like to believe that if you make something good, it'll you be You still have it? Yeah, 
and that's the thing. We didn't even try to shop it around anywhere else because here's what happened. Well, just the wheels fell off immediately. So not only my dad died within a couple month period of time, like a, maybe 60 days or 90 days after he died, the, the lease of the apartment we were all renting ran up. So I didn't have a place to go. I didn't have a place to live. And shortly after that, I had some trouble with the girl I was with and she left me. And why did she leave? I mean, were you relapsing on pills at this point? Not on pills, but I was, you know, seeking cocaine, drinking a lot and back to weed. So uh, the alcohol came back. It come back. You know, the alcohol came back. Coke comes back. Shit is fucked up. Like, how was it just before your dad died? It, it, right before my dad died, things were fantastic. We were, we were waiting to hear some good news. I was being very healthy. But you weren't in recovery. It wasn't um, abstinent. Is what I mean. No, it was not abstinent. Right. I mean, really, I, I've come to look at recovery the definition for me, recovery, is dealing with the underlying issues that led to your substance abuse. It's not about just Absolutely. being asked. Right, right. No, and recovery, I mean, like, I'm, I'm talking to this woman tomorrow who wrote a book called Undoing Drugs, and, and one of the big, it's about harm reduction, and one of the big central point of the books is that recovery is just moving toward a better life, regardless of anything else. That's recovery. Then I, I love that. And yes, I'm definitely in recovery. Now, a lot of people would say that's not a good definition because according to that definition, you could have a could be, you could have a dollar bill rolled up and poked up your nose, right? That's what that yeah, and that he believes that. Right. The guy who came up with right. that definition. Yeah, okay. And because he didn't have a needle in his arm. He wasn't sure. sharing a needle, instead he was snorting something and sure. he was safer and he had the propensity to stay alive. But anyway, it's whatever it is for you, man. Like, absolutely. So you, you're, you're, you're doing better. Your dad dies and the fucking wheels fall off. Wheels fall off. All these things happen at once. And it was really the heartbreak thing, too, that, that sent me over the fucking edge because now I couldn't even call her to talk to her about my dad. She was supposed to be there for me. Well, she was like your nervous system. She yes. was like your self-esteem built yes, into you. all of it. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. And she wasn't there giving me this, and I got so mad and hurt and all of that. And then jealousy on top of it. Oh, my God. What is she doing? I, who is she doing it with? And I, I, I shouldn't have invaded her privacy, but I, I found a, a list of people that she was talking to. So, like, it just hit me hard. Like, it's not like somebody you're getting cheated on and they're cheating on you with one person. It's like. <laughs> and you, it's, you had found out too much information. That's what they say pain is. They say pain is when you get too much information in a very short period of time. Right. And that's what I got. I got that's a lot of info in a very short period of time. Right. And, and that, so it fucked and, me up. And I've heard you do interviews and they're like, so Sean, how did you wind up homeless? And you're always like, well, my lease ran out and I didn't have anywhere to go. But this is a confluence of fucking misery. Yes, definitely. You wind up with no place to go and you're fucking. I'm staying at a friend's house. Who yeah. is the friend? It's a buddy of mine that. You're still friends with them? I don't really talk to him, but I suppose we could we could still be friends. I literally cut off my life before anything before recovery, man. I've hit delete on, you know. So were you I, using with that dude? Yeah. Okay. So 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 you break it down. You you lose the the lease. Your dad dies. The the woman Girl is leaves out. Me, right. And now I'm staying on my friend's couch. Yeah. And this went on for like two months. And I'm trying to put together a web series. Try to write it and shoot it while I'm staying on this guy's couch. What year? 2016. Right. And so this big TV project didn't work out, but I'm not going to accept no. Now I'm going to go and make my small web series version of this thing. Right. 
And so we're doing that for a couple months, and me and this guy had a falling out, and I left his apartment. He said some shit to me that, like, once a man says some shit like that to you, you can't sleep on his couch. You know what I mean? You what gotta did he leave. Say? He just called me a worthless piece of shit and told me I was useless, and you know, you had to leave. I just had to go. I agree. He lived right next door to a park where gangbangers would just chill and sell dope out of all day. So I literally had nowhere to go and sit except that park while I gathered my bearings and figured out what the hell I was going to do. I tried to get some coke a couple times, and they didn't have it, but they're like, hey, try this. I mean, it's way better, way better. And I'm like, you think I'm going to do crystal meth? You're out of your fucking minds. Like, that, you know, even at that point. So you had been a, such an alcoholic, you pickled your insides, you had been such a fucking pill addict that you went doctor shopping, fucking emergency room shit. And you did coke here and there. You were a stoner, but no way. No Chris, way. No way. And what there about heroin? No Have you I done heroin yet? On that little dick, heroin. No, I'd never even seen it. I'd never even seen crystal meth or heroin once. I have to say, this is the slowest moving, <laughs> most acute drug addicted story yeah, I've I ever could, heard. I could, I, yeah, both of those things. It's it definitely is acute for sure. Acute as fuck and yeah. slow moving as like. I don't just slow fucking yep. over time. Yeah, it took 30, 30 years. Which is which is crazy so so he you want coke he has crystal why'd you decide to do it just after time went by and i kept saying no and no i'm so bored and broke and frustrated and hurt sitting in that park that he could have maybe offered me a revolver and i might have put that in my mouth and taken it you and you had I mean? money uh i was blowing through my savings but yeah i had a, a debit card that i could use where were you sleeping i wasn't i was in a park and i was like just day, time was just rolling by, wasn't sleeping. See, I would be so scared. I was, dude. I was. And after about, I, I, I say it was a week until I tried meth, but it probably wasn't. It was probably like day two or three. <laughs> right. Because how long was I sitting there before I tried that? That's shit? the question. Yeah. It feels like a week, but it was probably less. And then the second you try it. Oh, bro. I was like, I literally like, I, I looked up to God and I was like, got you. Thank you, buddy. Received. I, I heard you describe <laughs> it like, that your misery, your depression was so bad, it felt like someone was standing on your chest. Yeah, and I've heard people use it, like say that, but this was a literal feeling that I had. And then, then I've heard you say, like what you just kind of described, that if they had given you a gun or cyanide or whatever, you might have taken that, but it turned out to be meth. And in some ways, it prevented you from killing yourself. I, I think it could be. It definitely helped me deal with the depression I was in, for sure. So that started a three-year homeless meth heroin run. Yeah. How did you first get heroin? Same guys. Did you befriend these people? Yeah. I was. I ended up like rolling out with them. And what did that? And they look were like? like they were thrilled because uh, hey, it's Goldberg the goalie, home. Huh? You remember Mighty Ducks? Look at him. How fast do you <laughs> tell them that you're Goldberg the they goalie? They figured that out it, within very shortly. They knew that. I never ever tell anybody who I am. And they just they just knew, yeah. and then it was like, holy shit, this famous guy is yeah. a drug addict, right. and he's with us. And it becomes us. like a novelty act for them. So, what is rolling with the uh, with this crew like? I was kind of into it, man, because like I'm at, here, I'm playing this street thug part now, bro. And it was like any other role that I'd done. I know how to gun into a role and play a different character, right? So I did. I just got into it, and I was enjoying it. But when, enjoying at, at night, they would go home, though, right? Some of them, these aren't these guys are pretty much homeless. You know, they have uh, trap houses that they kick it at, and you know, they're not. Most of them are homeless. And what part of LA? These guys that I was hanging out with in uh, Pocoima. Okay, that was where uh, 
Richie Valens came on. Oh, yeah. From from uh, La Bamba. Oh, okay. He's from Pacoima. You know that from watching La Bamba. Yeah, many yeah. times. I watched La I Bamba like movie. you watch Tango and Cash. I, I love La Bamba. Yeah. I, I did see it. I, I still watch it. If it comes really? on, I'm watching it. Sad. It's very sad. Oh, my God. I hate when that plane crashes. Oh, my God. Anyway. And the brother is such a piece of shit. Bob? Yeah. I love Bob. <laughs> I think they should make a sequel to La Bamba called What About Bob? <laughs> anyway, so, so let's talk about your homeless period. How hard is it to talk about... How fucked up is it? I mean, like, you're living in the house, and everyone's seen these pictures now of you being on the street for, for three years. Talk about the transition from leaving your friend's house to being totally fucking homeless junkie. Well, I was, uh, like I said, at first I was kind of into this, like, fast-paced lifestyle, you know? I was on the street. I was a street hustler, and it's exciting, you know? Because there's always, like, the threat of getting arrested or some shit going down or something. Or winning. Yeah, <laughs> or that. Or, you know, somebody whipping out a gun or just there's a certain level of danger that was kind of like exciting, turned me on a little bit. And so I would say for the first year that I was homeless, I was, I was maintaining myself. I had a 24-hour gym membership, so I was showering, right? And I was maintaining my hygiene, making sure I had clean clothes on. At some point, I had a conversion van. So I was like, you know, sleeping inside the van, getting high inside the van and stuff. And then somebody stole that van from me. Mm. And then I was just out there on the street, bro. And then it got real fucking rough. And I, I would get sick once a month. I, I could always maintain my shit for like three weeks. I had all the dope. I was helping everybody out. Here, I got you. I'll get you well. And then inevitably, once a, like the last week of the month, always something would happen. Somebody would steal my backpack. Or, you know, a drug dealer would fuck me over. Or something would happen to where I couldn't support my habit. And that was just the worst. I was dope sick once a month and having to, you know, I got to a point where like, I'm so sick, I can't go hustle to get my own dope. And that's, that's what sucked. So I was in that cycle for a while. And then I got to a point where my health got so bad that I couldn't even go in stores and hustle the way I used to. When I say hustle, I mean like going and rob the gap or going to rob Home Depot. What were your favorite hustles? I read about you robbing electronic stores, but what places? I, I you know. It doesn't it, matter. It really doesn't matter. I mean, like wherever I was located, I would rob that, you know, I would hit the CVSs wherever I was located or the Targets. Home Depot does real well. Cause, you know, and this is for, you know, to like get merchandise to trade for drugs. So you get the merch and you either sell it for cash and then use the cash or a lot of dealers will just trade you drugs directly for the merch. So I would steal a $300 drill and give it to a drug dealer for 40 or $50 worth of dope. Right. They're winning on that one. Totally. So, like, what are what are some what are some items that dealers prefer in the barter system? Oh well, I mean, uh, they were big on the uh, ring ring cameras. Those are huge items. Uh, yeah, any kind of recording. and they're easy to take, right? Yeah, and they're expensive. So, like dashboard cameras, any kind of recording devices. They want those. Sure, portable charging batteries, like the big ones, are always needed for people that are out there on the street. You always need juice for your phone or whatever. Yeah, so you could I could always get rid of those things. Um, batteries. Double A, triple A, people always need batteries for whatever. Um, Were you shooting heroin? No, I never shot. You it. never shot heroin or meth? I had someone shoot heroin into me a few times, but I never shot heroin. I tried. And if I could do it, I probably would have been a I probably would have been dead. And one, I could just never get it to register. Right. One of the most fucked up things that I read was the story with Judd Apatow 
that he gave you his laptop that he wrote the 40 year old virgin on yeah and that you sold it for whatever 60 bucks or whatever i used to get laptops and try to sell them all the time i they always were terrible laptops that you know like if it was somebody who actually used the laptop wouldn't want it but the dealers didn't really know like what what was what and you have this laptop which is you know probably just what kind of laptop was it it was a power book but like decked the fuck out like it was like probably a five thousand dollar laptop at the time right right <laughs> like they like one you can't even really buy like you know what i mean like and uh were you sick when you when you got rid of it probably yeah but listen i didn't i thought i was gonna come back and pick it up i didn't that's what we all we always we exactly always that. exactly <laughs> so it, it wasn't as stupid as like you gave up that laptop for 60 it wasn't months. stupid you're fucking sure. sick fucking heroin addict who's living in the street right. it wasn't and stupid the reason i only got 60 dollars was so i could afford to come get it back right. right right so there's that so not that that makes it any more logical but and i don't i was th- fucked up man and that was you know when i knew that i had lost it that was like fucked up for me it was hard to deal with that with that loss what did it what did it feel like i just felt like i was really fucking up now like now it's crossing the line like now this you can't come back from that yeah yeah basically like the person i've become i'm too far down the line like i'm past the point of of making a u-turn and getting my career back or that's when i knew i didn't want to be a writer anymore and you take your fucking laptop and pawn that shit. You're not a writer anymore. You're well, officially I mean, a How many guy. fucking guitar players like are sick guitar players and they're junkies and they pawn their guitar every day? Yeah. You know, like it doesn't mean like I, I'm just here. You're, I'm you know, like your personal cheering section that's yeah, saying just you. because you fucking pawned your laptop doesn't mean you're not a writer. Sure. It means you were, ju- you were a junkie. Yeah. You know, like you can you can write again. And like and another thing. And he was giving me a chance too, you know. That was the other thing that's kind of heartbreaking. Looking back, like he well, was giving me talk a about that because people know who he is. And, yeah, and he I, was really like being my mentor and giving me a chance, like teaching me how to write and giving me different jobs and assignments that really cultivate me as a writer. Like he got me a job writing on writing jokes for the Oscars. I wrote jokes for bridesmaids for the for incredible, the, yeah, ADR. Like when they they have uh, for post production. And he just gave me all these cool gigs, grooming me for better things. And the last thing he had me working on was uh, he was having me write my own life story into a feature when I severed ties with him. That's what we were working on. And and talk about the severing of ties. Because I think, listen, I'm not saying this. It's it's almost as though I dredge this shit up to hurt you. No, but I, I think I like these are the talking points. No, no, it's yeah. not even that. It's that we all, as addicts, we all do shit like that. We just don't do it with Judd Apatow. We do it with our boss at Petland Discounts or something. Oh, uh, yes, definitely. You know? So he was helping me out, being incredibly gracious. And I don't know, I got it in my head that he could be be doing more. Were you using at that point? (laughs) I was drinking and, you know, it was basically alcohol is what did this. And uh, we just had a conversation one time and I was saying ridiculous things to him. And I was like raising my voice. And he just said, if you don't stop right now how you're acting, I'm not going to help you anymore. And, you know, or we won't talk. He basically warned me, like, stop now. Don't proceed any further. And I didn't stop. You were pissed. Yeah. And I kept, I got even worse. And I was pretty much in my, the back of my mind, I don't ever want to talk to you ever again. Which is ridiculous because, you know, not only is he a helpful guy and he had done a lot to help me, but, you know, he's, he's an old friend at that point. Well, it's self-will run riot. Like, it's the definition of that, that story. Yeah. And then you have, and he had given you the laptop and you had the vestige of it. 
and you give it up in this in this hustling period. Yeah, and he knew he asked me too. He's like, "Have you been drinking?" Because he knew <laughs> you wouldn't have done that if you weren't exactly, drinking. Exactly, exactly. You wouldn't have burned it down. Exactly. And I told him uh, yes, and he said some things to warn me. And I was like, "But that's not why I'm acting like this." You know, I told him, "I'm like, I've been drinking, but that has nothing to do with what I'm saying." Classic alcoholic. <laughs> of course. <laughs> And uh, which is obvious and that's had everything to do with what I was saying. And so uh, after that moment, we ended our call and I just never tried to ever contact him ever again since that moment. Well, I, I mean, I would like to encourage you to reach out. Well, I mean, I'm going to say not. He gave me the also. He said he gave me the warning. And as a man, I feel like it's not very manly to. Who cares? To have continued. Make an amend. I think the amends you make is is when you feel ready. Do you know what my problem is with my amends, bro? I feel like people don't give a fuck. They've moved on to my life. And they don't give a shit about me and my 12 steps and my process to bother him with an apology. Listen, but like, it, I don't, that's I don't, fine. You know? That's fine. They don't need to. Either way, you're there right now. But if you make the amend, your side is fucking fixed. And whatever happens with him, whatever. I still like the idea. Of, Do you think he knows that I, I'm sorry for what I did? I have no idea. I don't know Judd Apatow. I but don't just know. as, you know, I, I you're right. You're right. You couldn't possibly I couldn't possibly know. I feel like he knows that I'm sorry. And I feel like, what, is, what good does it do me to... It does it for you. It does it for I don't you. I know that it's going to do me any good. I, I feel like that's a mess that I fucking made. And if I look at it in terms of, well, how can I clean this up? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose it. You can't clean it up in the way that it will help your career, in the way that you can have Judd Apatow make the future about your life. You can't clean it up like that. You can clean it up by saying, listen, you gave me a shot. I was fucking alcoholic. I fucked it up. I've changed my life. I want to apologize to you. That's it. And then you, you clap your hands together and you walk away. And if you write the feature to your life, you can hand it to him one day after you've made the amend. But the amend is for you. It's not that's for him. The, that's the other really hard thing about dealing with a guy like him because with his position, it feels like anything you do is... Self-motivated. Right, you're doing it to get him to make you Because he's a gatekeeper to make you money. Exactly. So but, you, but, but, but put that out of it. Yeah. Put that out of it. Pretend it's like nobody. Okay. No, this is really good advice, man. I, I probably should take that advice. Because, like, it'll be good for you. There's no way what, doing what you're saying, like, ends up horribly. <laughs> it's, just, it's what it is now. Exactly. Only you've made an effort to, to clean up your side of it. Yeah. And, like, good and also, it's thoroughly doing the thing. Yeah, you're right. It's doing the, the fucking step. It's doing it Driving without having to expect anything back. It's like shooting the arrow but not worrying about if it hits the target because you fucking shot it. Yeah. And it's, like, it's freedom. It's a little tiny piece of freedom. You know, that's good advice because, you know, there may be a part of him that it wonders what in the back of his heart, like what, like the decency of this guy, can he at least reach out and apologize to me? He might be waiting on that. You, you might be right. It, 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 listen, I feel like somebody like Judd Apatow, he is really interested in addicts for some reason. And I, I think he's interested in just the study of, of, of human behavior. Because, right. You know, Right, this struggle, like, and also his interest in comics and how many comics were addicts and all that. I think he's interested in it. I don't know anything about him except he turned down the Dobie project and that I felt like he objectified Artie a bit and he objectified poor Andy Dick, who's fucking hustling right now, selling power tools. He, really he just got arrested, yeah. I didn't know. He that. does not want to stop using. No. Anyway. We're, we're he's, to me, he's, Andy Dick's one of the funniest guys on the planet. I, I dig his shit, dude. 
Well, I, I, you know, I've been talking to him and uh, he always comes on the show. He always asks me for money when he comes on the show. The audience hates him. Oh, really? They hate him because he doesn't want to get sober. Cause he, and he always, like, gives me shit on the show, and they don't like that. That's hysterical. So do you ever give him money? No. Oh, okay. But I offered to. Okay. He asked me for money. I agreed to give him money, and then I called him, and he never he never took the money. What? Because I think it's a shtick. Oh, I see. Who knows? Oh, Let's get back to your story, though. You're fucking... Well, I'm trying to see if I can walk out of here with, like, 150, 200. Well, come on. We, we made a deal. <laughs> we're, on, we're on a path. We're on a path. <laughs> okay, so... So you're homeless. You're fucking hustling when does it go from there's excitement and it's manageable because it's never really manageable when does it go from unmanageable to fucking horrible apocalypse? definitely when i lost that van and the same guy stole it twice he stole it who is this guy some drug addict some heroin guy that i used to go and rob stores did he have a good street name joe just joe all right but everybody knew him he was like he was like the master thief like this guy could steal like a painting out of a fucking museum like what would he steal with you um high-end electronics like drones and shit like that laptops cell phones what was his technique oh man like well one thing he used to do he used to go to home depot get a receipt for something a large item that he'd find in the parking lot and then he'd go in home depot and get a cart right like a giant cart this is a big item and then he would put that giant item on the cart and he would take a knife and rip the box open and then he'd walk around to customer service with the receipt and go, I just took this to my car. It's fucking open. I want a new one. And they would just bring him out a new one. And they would wheel the new one out to his outside for him. I love it. He didn't even have to steal it. And he did this over and over and over and over. And other shit, just like we would have getaway cars parked by the you know exit. We would just go in and grab two or three drills each and just dip out the back. But Totally. And like, did you ever write about any of those capers? I really haven't. No, I've barely spoken about them. Listen, this is an untapped creative sure. well. Yeah. I was thinking about doing like a like a series, you know, like a 10 episode thing about my story about ending up on the street and trying to forge like a street family and trying to survive in like a Skid Row type of place. Did you were you on Skid Row? There's a place in the valley that's similar to Skid Row but just a lot smaller and not as crazy, so I I just lived there for a little bit until they tried to kill me. What was the family? Well, I, right when I first got out, like when I was lost my van and I'm out, out on the street. I, uh, I ran into this couple. It was a lady and her street brother, but they were just friends. Right. And she kind of became like my street mom. Everybody knew her. She kind of took me in. And for the first couple months I was out there, I just rolled with her and learned like how to survive on the street from her, learned how to hustle from her and her friends. So, yeah, that was my Did friend. you use with her? Oh, yeah. What were you guys using? She was meth. Did she shoot it or she would smoke, smoke. it? Interesting. The people that shoot meth, you don't want to really hang out with, bro. <laughs> this is not a friend you want to have. Because meth is like, you know, most of those people, I 50% of the time, they're in like full-blown psychosis. Right. So you can't deal with that shit. For whatever reason, like I had shot a ton of heroin before I ever did meth. So when I, when I started doing meth, I would smoke it. But then I was like, I got to try shooting it. And um, yeah, I couldn't handle it. Like I couldn't, I didn't go psychotic. I couldn't handle meth in general. I just... It did not jive with my... You didn't like that feeling? No. No, I liked it as long as there was a shit ton of heroin coming to me right away, yeah. if not simultaneously. Yeah, I get that. Would you put The that- worst is when you're dope sick from heroin and you try to smoke some meth just to try to feel better. Terrible. And now you're dope sick, but you're like fucking wired. Horrible. Oh God. 
Thank God those days are over. Man. So did you smoke meth and heroin together? Yeah, I'd put them on the same foil. That was like one of my favorite things to do. And that was like, what do they, do they call that anything? It's like chasing the dragon I call, ball. I called it a, you know, the New York cookies, the black and white. Of course I do. <laughs> are you crazy? That's what I used to call it. That's the black and white cookie. Yeah. Did you just say the black and white? Yeah. All right. But I, in my mind, I was imagining one of those cookies. All right. Well, I think that <laughs> that makes sense. And um, do you have any good, horrible drug stories from this era that you can think of that is like an epic tale? I'm sure you have 10 billion, so just give us one. Or is it too painful? No, it's not too painful. I just wish I have, I should have just locked and loaded. Just give me a minute. I'll figure one out. Take your time. Because I get the kind of story. I love the black about. and white. I mean, and I love that story about the dude who fucking, how he rigged Target or Home Depot or whatever. Yeah, I mean, there's so many. <laughs> like, here's the thing, man. When you're out on the street, the amount of shit that happens to you over the course of one week is like what happens to a normal person over a year or a lifetime. Lifetime. I mean, really, man. Like, I started making a list of, like, the people I'd met out there. I, I met thousands of people. I fucked with thousands of people out there on the street that I bump into that I, that I know. So it's just, there's so much, so much life out there. And, you know, when I look back, like, right when you asked me that question... It's such a dark period of, of my life that no, nothing jumps out as like, oh, tell this story. Everybody Not to get mention, a kick out of that. Well, but did, I mean, like, what about in the scene? Like, I know that, like, when I was using, I guess I would tell the stories at rehab. You know, I would tell the stories in a detox, or I would tell the stories when I was copping, like something that had gone wrong that I knew was cataclysmic or something. In that period, how much did that little family get you through that chunk of time? Oh, yeah, it was my survival, having those people. Definitely, they helped me not get assaulted if I ever, like, laid my eyes shut, you know? Because that was, that was the thing. I, every time I fell asleep on the street, I'd wake up and all my shit would be gone, you know? I never had a tent. I never had my own spot. And I realized, I kind of figured out the reason I never got a tent was that would be me admitting I'm homeless on the street. And even though I was out there for three years, I never really related as somebody that was a homeless person but you know i guess i guess a lot of the crazier stories uh have to do with like loss prevention and me getting busted for shit you know it's very weird for a guy who's like he doesn't know whether to bust you or get a selfie you know right. what i mean it's very strange i had one guy loss prevention guy that towards the end of my time out Wait, there, what's loss prevention they're like the security that works inside the a store to make sure nobody steals anything okay so there was one store where the loss prevention guy was such a big fan of mine. He would meet me outside every day and pay me money, give me money to go get dope. So you didn't have to, so he didn't have to bust you. Exactly. That's so. And it was just cheaper to hand me $40 or $50 than to have me go steal $1,000 worth of shit. You know, he's in some kind of CODA meeting right now. He's, he's a total enabler. <laughs> he sent me a message on Facebook the other day and just telling me like he's proud of me and he's happy that like I cleaned up, you know. That's the other thing, man. The support that I've gotten from people was the difference in my turnaround. It's been the difference. I've heard you talk about it. How did you get better? Like, what the fuck happened? I was facing three years for a robbery. For stealing drills? No, it was like a home invasion type thing. What happened there? I was freezing, and uh, I was getting rained on. I had no jacket. I had pneumonia, and I was so cold my bones hurt. It was raining. And I found this property that I believe was vacated. And, you know, I had four sale signs everywhere. I looked in the window, empty. And uh, it had a detached garage, quite a bit of distance from here to the bathroom door away from the house. And the detached garage was open. I went inside, fell asleep. 
I did not know that I was in a place that somebody was living at. I would not have done that. I'm telling you right now, I'd never done any type of like home invasion shit. I'd have been worried about getting shot, which almost happened. The guy told my sister, and he, he actually said it on the news, that he had his, uh, his gun pointed at me, and God told him not to shoot me. So I just woke up, and the cops were standing over me. And That's home invasion, to go sleep in somebody's garage? Yeah, it's a, you went in. You weren't supposed to go in. So yeah, I was looking at three years, and the judge thought I was a good candidate for the drug program, which is where they give you a chance to get clean instead of locking you up. And, you know, I, I see guys in jail, like they figure out a way to make it work in there, you know? They get their meals, they get their friends, they're laughing, they're fine. And when I get to jail, I'm just, I can't take it in there, man. Like I, I literally start peeling the paint off the walls. And so it was good for me because after about, you know, 30, 40 days sitting in a room solitary, which is where I was, after about 30 days, 23 hours a day sitting in a room by yourself, you kind of have to do your own clearing out of your own mind, you know? So that was a very and sober necessary point. Yeah, sober did up. They, did, were you just kicking, kicking cold turkey in yes. there? And you had a heroin habit when you went in? Yes. How bad was your habit? A uh, gram a day. How much does a gram go for in, in Los Angeles? I think so. 60 or 65. I mean, that's money you have to make every day. Yeah. Was it ever panhandling or was it always uh, I never hustling? wanted to panhandle. I would play my harmonica a lot. Can you play good? Yeah, I'm pretty good. Like, pretty good. Like, a lot of people say they can play harmonica. In the I time. can play harmonica. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, pretty good? Pretty good. All right, we'll see. So, I, w- I would make good money. Like, I would make, uh, you know, standing in front of 7-Eleven. Isn't that funny that the, the junkie harmonica player, like, what is that? Like, why, <laughs> why should we both be junkie harmonica players? I don't know. Maybe because they're cheap. I could always steal them from Guitar Center. Oh, sorry. Fuck. I'm waiting on one of these places to like drop a lawsuit. Can you believe them. how much they're, they're charging for harmonica? It's like 80 bucks for the one I played. When I was a kid, it was $21. Yeah. $19. And now it's like yeah, expensive. Honor, Honor's like 80. Marine band. Anyway. Crazy. Dude, we're, we were just, you, you, you kick, you know? Yes. So yeah, I was even, I didn't even buy meth, bro. Like I used to get meth for free. I would just buy the heroin and they would just give me. Throwing the meth. The yeah. So that's one thing, and I didn't even really know I was a, a meth addict because I was never trying to ever get meth ever. It was just there, like got to me how weed is to somebody in the in L.A. on the in the valley. Meth there is like how weed is in Jamaica because everyone's just growing it. Yeah, everyone's smoking meth out there, like in the valley. It's not like some weird, some crazy thing. So, did you ever stumble on a meth dealer named Diggy with a shaved head? Oh, you know Diggy? <laughs> no. Oh well, <laughs> that'd have been hysterical. So. um kicking in jail and when the candidate for drug court came up i actually had to think about it i was like do i want to go through this bullshit a year and get sober how soon or after can you I, get or busted can i just do the time <laughs> how soon after you get busted you become the candidate about three weeks i was sitting in court and, and you kicked in the cell they didn't give you methadone they gave me nothing no methadone nothing and i it was hard on them too man because you know at one point i uh took a shit on the bed right mm. And instead of cleaning it up or calling for anyone, I just took the mattress and flipped it over. Because you're fucking sick. Yeah, dude. Like, I couldn't move, really. The stink in the room got so bad, and the guards came by. And imagine, I'm just sitting in that room. You're lying in that bed. Bro, yeah. With shit on the other side of it. Yeah. Yeah, man. And the guards had to deal with you. And, 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 and they had to come clean it up. And, and they literally, I couldn't get off the bed. So they, a couple of them, three or four of them, picked me up and put me in the shower. Did you get to use it all when you were in jail? No. Okay, I so. wasn't. I wasn't thinking about that. I was ready to to get clean. Okay, and so when they give you the the option to do drug court, play it out for us. Yeah, they were. You know, the option for drug court came up, and I was 
I was into it because out there on the street for the last year, I'd wanted to get clean. And every bag I got, man, was my last bag I'm ever going to get. I'm going to get this. I'm going to get high today. I'm going to get well. And then I'm going to go to detox. I'm going to go check my in, myself in the state. Every time, every bag for a year. I'm not kidding. I really was telling myself that, telling myself this consistent lie. So I wanted to get better. I just didn't know how to do it. And when I went to the state places, there were just nightmares, disgusting. It wasn't filthy. a lie, though, because you wanted to believe it. It was, yeah. it was self-deception, yeah, right? It wasn't a lie, you know, because you wanted to, to be able to use and, and be like, now it's done. But, the, you know, you, I don't think lying is like that. I don't know if it's, it's even necessary to make a distinction. But, like, you know, you, I don't want you but to But it's be different. I, know, I, I, I see what you're saying. It is different. It is self-deception because you're telling yourself it's not like I'm lying to myself because that that would make me like schizophrenic, right? Like two two different personalities, or just totally like against yourself when that right. wasn't what was happening. And in the end of a of a run, it's like lots of self deception. And what really screwed me over out there was lack of a cell phone. <laughs> right when I first got out on the street, like months two or three, I couldn't keep a cell phone. Everybody, I, it would get stolen. I'd get a new one as soon as I would get it. Within the next day, it'd get, it'd get taken. And so I couldn't even reach out to people for help when I very first ended up on the street. Well, who would you, I mean, like, because I'm thinking about it. I'm something. thinking about it like you were living with your folks until he died. Yeah. And then it's like you didn't, you, then you're blinded in fucking a drug tornado. Who would you have called? I, I, I don't know now that I think about it. Like, you, I know your sister said she was looking for you in that period. Yeah. I don't know about that. I don't know, man. I don't know who I don't know who who I could have called, but I know that my head wasn't focused on how to get housed. It was focused on how to get high. Sure. So if I was focused on how to get housed, I would have found a way. But like I, just like you did get high. Right, exactly. I understand. I just wasn't even concerned with that. So it was, you know, way too far down the line. So the judge gave me permission to do drug court, which is a big deal. She could have said, fuck him, let him sit in a jail cell, asshole, breaking in people's houses, stealing shit, you know, let him learn his lesson, but she didn't. Probably she was going to give me like a chance or two, and then she was waiting on me to fuck up, and then she would have thrown me in jail. So I got out, and I I didn't want to test dirty, because they could have put me right back in jail on one dirty test. So I kind of made a deal with myself to hold off, stay clean for as long as I have to, till I don't have to test anymore. About a month into rehab, it just hit me, man. That, that shit was not going to work out well. You know, like, <laughs> this is not going to go. I really admitted the patterns that I started to recognize but hadn't really admitted that it had existed. But now I realize that these patterns are there. They're going to, if I do the same behavior, I might, it's not that I might not end up in the same place. I will end up in the same place. What year was this? This was 2020. Right, and this is the beginning of your of your recovery, yes. of your sobriety, mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it. Right. Fucking. So then I started praying to God. I don't even know if you're there. A good way to prove to me that you exist would be to take this obsession away. When did you start going to meetings? Well, I did. I mean, right when I got out of treatment, I had to fulfill, I think I was court-ordered 130, 120 or 130 meetings. So where did you go to treatment? I went to treatment in Lancaster, California. Okay. It was like a nice small boutique type of place in the desert. And I really liked that because I felt like, you know, separated from LA. And it was just in the desert. It was like a night, it felt like a healthy place to recuperate. How long were you there for? I was there for 90 days. 
Mm-hmm. Wait, before that though, what was the story where the the woman who worked in recovery, who was a child actor, saw your picture? What's that story? Yeah, she she saw my picture. She knew I was in jail, and we were friends from when we were like fifteen or sixteen. So she's in the recovery business. She wanted to reach out and help me. So really, she helped. The court would have put me in drug court, but I was in Marysville, California, which is like bumblefuck. It's up by Sacramento. And they would have let me do drug court, but I would have had to go to like a Salvation Army program or church program in that area. So Natanya was able to politic to let them let me come to Los Angeles to go to treatment at the place that she had picked out for me. And, you know, she was an addict in recovery, too. Yeah. And she was like, I know this kid. Yeah. And like, let's give him a chance kind of thing. And she was just from day one, like my biggest champion. And and she would defend me if if need be. And she would, you know, advocate for me and just just like showered me with love the whole time. You know, like you need some of that when you're facing this dismal road ahead of you. It's like, you know, right when I was I'm sitting there in recovery, I don't have any teeth in my face. I don't have, I don't think anybody cares about me. I have nothing, you know? I have nothing. I don't have a driver's license. I don't have a bank account. I don't have a cell phone. I don't have shoes. It's hard to like imagine your future and get excited about this journey. I was just like, my energy was kind of sulking. You know what I mean? Because I felt felt defeated. I hadn't seen my reflection in so long. I didn't know what I looked like without teeth. Right. Until I got in rehab and looked in the bathroom mirror. And the first time I saw my reflection, I fucking jumped. It's not an exaggeration. I was scary looking. And then I had the thought to myself, even if I get fucking clean, stay clean. Look at me. I'm a fucking monster. So, and then I was deathly afraid of dental work, even getting a fucking cavity. So, like, I wasn't contemplating having full facial reconstructive surgery. And then if I had to do that to get better, I didn't mean to. How could you do it without pain pills? Yeah, dude. Like, fucking, it was a mess. It was a fucking mess, bro. So, you know, I just started to just, get momentum slowly and really what helped me was getting my you know, my teeth fixed and that took two years looking back at it if i had to do it i, I don't think i would have done it i can't believe i let them fucking do this to me every three months they would just completely shred my face up every three months i would have a surgery and then i would heal for another three months and no no painkillers no painkillers. nothing no what would you nothing no. leave tylenol advil leave in tylenol like crazy dosages and said, yeah, where would, would you where would you stay i was living in a sober living at this time and i still am okay and how was that how did that compare with hustling on the street it's a lot easier <laughs> so i i'm grateful i it's getting kind of old situation because i'm a 43 year old guy and i live in a sober living with like you know kids Sober living's for young guys, you know, it's not for 45-year-old men. So, you know, it's, it's been challenging, dude. I'm not going to lie. But You'll get to the I, next place when, when, it's, when you're I feel, time. I feel you, like that. You will. But I am so grateful that I'm not out on the street that sometimes when I have, like, little problems, I, I know to, like, you know, take a minute and reassess. And just I remember the bad times. I keep that stuff with me, so I'm constantly in gratitude. And I don't, I'm not bullshitting. I can tell. It's amazing. Like, I, I forget gratitude all the time, and I have so much to be grateful for. It's just funny how things go. It's easy to forget shit, you know, and it's like, and you're not forgetting this shit anytime soon. That's right. I had this quote that I thought was really interesting that I heard you say, 10 people walk into a 7-Eleven, one of them will give you a dollar, one of them will tell you, you fucking stink, you piece of shit, and eight of them will act like you're not there. I didn't know humans were like that. 
That, yeah. That's a fucking crazy quote. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't under I didn't really know how human beings were. I didn't I never saw that side of things. Like I didn't even believe really racism racism existed because I'd never seen a white guy yell the N-word at somebody. You know what I mean? So if you haven't seen that stuff all your life, it's like I was the guy that they're asking for a dollar. I was never the guy asking for a dollar. And uh, yeah, it's to, to, to be exposed to that side of things. That's what hurts more act, when they act like you're a ghost. That hurts more than telling you, fuck off, you stink. You know, because you're invisible. It's like, I don't even deserve you to tell me I'm a piece of shit. That's, it's painful, man. And then, you know, then there's that one person. And it, when they show up in real time, it really feels like God's sending you an angel when you get that person who shows up and hands you a $10 bill. Right. It really feels like, thank you for sending me that. Because I'm, you know. Does that affect when you become sober or when you start working a program and you start praying? Can you connect to that feeling of when you're begging and 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 you got yes. 10 bucks? Yeah, I connect to that feeling because it's a uh, it's this feeling of like a, a loving guidance that is the same energy that is recovery. So it's that same feeling that has gotten me through this whole time. For me, I never, I never had much of a connection to God, but I knew that I needed one. It seemed as though I would need one if I was actually going to get sober. And then when I heard, rarely have we seen someone thoroughly follow the path and not attain these results, I was like, I never thoroughly followed any path. I need to thoroughly follow this. Well, I think, I think that's incredibly important that you said that because I feel like, it's my interpretation, that the 12 steps are literally an instruction manual on how to have a spiritual awakening. It is. Yeah. 100%. It says after having done these things, we right. had a spiritual awakening. So uh, it, it deserves some evaluating. Uh, if you haven't had a spiritual awakening, maybe you need to do your steps again because I know people that don't feel like they've had that awakening but are in the program for a while. You know, So it definitely, according to two Bs, you can't recover without that connect, without that awakening. So that's what we're trying to get at. And I've never seen anybody do those steps, like try to strengthen their relationship with God through prayer and meditation, make amends, clean their... I've never seen anybody do those steps. And not do and, well. Right. Right, exactly. It's not, it's not and possible. When, and when you're not doing well, you're not living in right. those steps. You just got to figure out which one of those fucking things. For me, it's like, I honestly feel like six and seven, like getting my character defects removed was was I was on those steps for like a year and a half or two years or something. And I still feel, I, I did the steps again, and I still feel like my character defects are always coming back. Sure. And I forget to ask for them to be removed. You know what's an easy hack for me for that? Honesty. Honesty. Because I usually find that whenever I'm uh, going astray, it has to do with some kind of honesty. Either I'm trying to deceive somebody of something, I'm trying to hide something. Get away with something. Or, get or away big with, shotism. Yes, something like that. So when I just return to just, just trying to have integrity, then those things kind of fall away. You still go to meetings? I haven't, just because what the day I went to court and I had completed my responsibility to them, it was kind of like the end of COVID too, so the meetings are just starting to be in person again. I haven't been going to meetings, but I'm craving the connection with that community. Yeah. And so I, um, it is something I'll be doing when I get back to LA. Are you still talking to sponsor or no? You know, I, No. All right. Well, I'm I could never. I've tried to get three sponsors. It hasn't worked out. One guy I got was a fucking. Uh, it's like manic depressive. It, I could. He bummed me out. I'd call him up. I'm like, bro, I feel like using. He's like, yeah, me too. Like, what the <laughs> fuck? Do you have a sponsor you can call, or what do we do? How do we work this out? So we ended up going to the strip club. This guy, son of a bitch, has the nerve to ask me for money 
You don't. Uh, that's not. You don't ask your sponsor yeah. for money. No, no, it's the other way it's supposed to go. That's, I, that's what I thought. Yes. I'm like, this is totally backwards. And and also, I'm like, I thought this relationship. I thought lending money was off limits. He's like, he's like, well, why would you think that? I'm like, because you said that on our first conversation. Remember, you're like lending money. Well, when a, let's just say this: when a sponsor says, "Can I borrow money from a sponsor?" That's it's, that. That's not good. It's not going to end. That's well. not a good sign in yeah. the relationship. Now, I and then let me just say this too: please. I I met another sponsor, and I had been clean for almost three years. And I have one friend that's like, you know, big in the program, and and feels like I'm doing it incorrectly because I don't have a sponsor, right? For me, I read the big book. I can't find the word sponsor. No, it's anyway, not in there. That's what I thought. Anyway. So I made an attempt. I'm like, let me go and see because I'm, my mind is open to things, right? I'm not, I don't turn anything down without investigation. So I called the guy and he wanted me to do a bunch of writing assignments. And, uh, you know, I get it. I get it. I just feel like I had done that part already. Someone just told me, like, I had an issue with my sponsor and I met this guy that I really liked, really successful guy. Like, I was really interested in, in learning from him. And he was like, oh, you, I hear you're having, because I had said I was having issues with my sponsor. And he was like, well, I work out of this book, you know, this workbook, fucking 120 page book. He's like, why don't you do it with me? And I was like, because I don't want to fucking do that. I won't write all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And he goes, he's like, you don't sound willing. And I was like, no, I just said I don't want to do it. <laughs> um, but like, I'm trying to get myself to do it just because like, why not? Right. You know what I mean? Like, and also yeah. because I want to write. Like, I've never written anything. I want to write something, but the only way I can write anything is if I actually write anything. Sure. So, like, I'm trying to use this as some kind of hack into you know writing. What, you know what's a great act, too? I read this book called The Artist's Way. Are you familiar with that yeah, book? Yeah, 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 yeah. So they have you doing these. The pages. The morning pages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a tremendous access point because I've been doing that for two years, and i got to say it has helped me. You're doing it now? Immeasurably, yeah. That's awesome. And just journaling, it helps, it helps quiet my mind so much. It focuses my writing. I mean, it does... It's, there's so many benefits to it. And also just this simple act of being disciplined helps me so much in life. Like when I wake up and I don't feel like writing those pages and I make myself do it, I feel good the rest of the day because I know I'm strong. I have strength. I'm, you know. Because you're disciplined. You're doing right, something. Exactly. Now, what's the plan? Like what's, what's the dream? Can I say one other thing? Say anything. I feel like I, that big book was so prophetic to me. Like those words in that book, I felt like. It was you. Yeah. And I, I know several other people that feel the same exact way. So I really feel like, that, like that's a prophetic text. I feel like in some ways the community is to the big book what religion is to the Bible in some ways. In that I feel like the Bible is something that you can just draw from. Draw from in the same way the big book is. I don't feel like the big book is useless without the program. I feel, and I feel like some people kind of act like it is. Yeah, I, I mean, I've decided in my old age that I don't care. You know right. what I'm saying? Like, right. meaning, like, if you get enough from the big book, great. If you get enough from the fellowship, great. If you get enough from meetings, great. If you get enough from smoking weed, great. If you take ayahuasca and you're in touch with the higher power, terrific. For me, I just don't want to fuck up anything I'm doing. And I want to, like, I like my life. And it and it's working, so I do it the way. And, and like the thing that's that, just the right way to do it. The thing that I was always I always heard, like I, I I got sober when I was 41, right? And I couldn't get sober forever. In the meeting that I got sober, and they just said a hundred times, like, "Do you have a sponsor? Are you doing steps? Do you have a sponsee? 
do you go to meetings? He's like, if you do all those things, the chances of you relapsing are are way diminished. And I was like, okay, that that sounds good. Yeah, but I mean, that makes that makes total sense. I always thought of it as like bundling up, yeah. you know, or like reverse strip poker. Like you're not going to be naked because you have all these clothes on. Sure. You know, and you have all these different layers sure. of defense. But I no matter what the actual thing is, you're putting, you're investing your time and energy into your sobriety, right? So right. It doesn't I see it as like a, a giant uh, coin jar. Yeah. And anything you do, you're throwing coins in there. You just want to fill it up. Spiritual dollars. Exactly. You just want to fill that box up, whether you're going to a meeting, doing your step. Talking to somebody. Right, exactly. I hear you, just man. Just keep working on throwing coins in there because you don't want to neglect that box. You don't want it to get to empty. You, yeah, you don't want to have nothing left. I had a couple more questions. I wanted to know what your dream is now. Um, we hinted around a bunch of interesting stuff to me. It's professionally, but it's more than professionally because I derive a lot of my identity through my work, you know? So it'd be a big part of my life to get my stand-up comedy tour going on a lot of levels. It's just like something I've always wanted to do my whole life, and I never, like, just gave it the focus necessary to get that done. So it's kind of a little bit about proving to myself I can do it, you know, just discipline-wise. So I'm trying to do stand-up comedy, but... People are telling me that they get some inspiration from my story. Of course. So if I can figure out a way to like be really funny and be able to deliver a heartwarming talk that is able to inspire people and give people strength and hope at the same time, that would I would think I would really be fulfilled, you know, being of service in that way while using what I believe to be my gift. I've never said that out loud. <laughs> that would really make me happy. And, you know, I haven't really... I've never really been a guy that wanted family that much, but I see these guys with their little sons, you know, their little mini-me's, and I'm kind of maybe wanting one. So I might try to get a woman pregnant. I think that's a really good idea. It's a good idea, right? As soon as possible, and you shouldn't know her very well. Sure, and just, you know, I just basically want to just add to the population in any way I can. We need more people around here. Another little I don't kid. think there's enough kids in the world. Um, No, but I'm glad you came on. Your story's Thanks. fucking insanity. I find that, uh, are you, is there a time constraint thing? No. So they showed us this video in recovery, and it talked about the hedonic scale. And it's basically a, a measurement of someone's pleasure, right? And so a regular guy on a normal day, things are kind of, things are average. His number is 60. If that guy's having a shit day and he's depressed, that number is 20. If he's in love and he's having a wonderful day, that number is 80. When that guy does meth, that number is 1,200. Right. So that's what we're dealing with here. If I told myself... I never want to feel 1,200 again. I think I'd be kidding myself and I'd be setting myself up for inevitable relapse. So I do want to feel 1,200 again. I found a way that I can get to 1,200 without putting external things in my system. And I had an experience one day where I, I got there. So I felt like I was on heroin, but I hadn't been on heroin. And it was even better than heroin. It was cleaner and just better and more spiritual, and it happened to me by accident. And I went around YouTube or in the, on Google trying to figure out what had happened to me, like typing in my symptoms. And I found out that something happened to me that um, a lot of yogic practices are kind of designed to get you to this point that I had gotten to accidentally. So it came into my awareness that this euphoria that I was craving is something that ex exists within me, and I just had to figure out how to access it. And I just had to figure out how to turn the switch. So instead of trying to figure out, trying to convince myself that I never ever want to be 1,200, I've spent a considerable amount of time every day doing these yogic practices in hopes of one day. Well, like kundalini? Yeah. So right now I can get to, if I sit and really try, I can get myself to around six, seven, eight hundred. 
with the breathing thing? Similar things. It's in that world. I learned a very specific practice from an actual guy. Is it fire breathing? I don't know that exact term. I don't know. But I would. What's it called? It's a practice called Shambhavi Mahamudra. And it's just an ancient thing. How do we learn how to do it? You can go go online and look up. Well, this guy's Sad Guru. Do you know him? Sad Guru? I've heard the name. You heard that guy? He's basically, it's basically one of his programs. But if you go online and you look up Google the Isha Kriya, that's I-S-H-A, new word, K-R-I-Y-A, then that'll be like an incredible introduction to the topic I'm speaking about. It's like a short little process that you learn. It kind of conditions you to being able to do the other process that I've told you about. So really, without those things, I don't know where I'd be, you know, sitting here not wanting to ever feel 1,200 again. I think I'd have a fucking plan in the back of my head to go get one off, bro. So I still have that plan. I'm just getting there in a different in a different way. To feel as good as and you I can. Really, I really think, you know, there's no part of treatment that is dedicated toward, you know, that is based on that. It's all towards not getting you to ever want to feel this way again. Nobody ever talks about how can we get there. How do we access this amazing feeling? Right. So if at all there's any work that I could do in that area in, you know, helping people. I'm sure there is. I'm sure there's tons of work in that area. Because everybody wants to feel as good as they can without harming themselves or anyone else. But it takes work. It's just like developing a muscular physique at the gym. It's practice. You got and you got to maintain it. You got to keep doing it. You get better and stronger and better and stronger. So all of this is just maintenance, right? Everything is maintenance. Success in life is maintenance. Right. People are successful because they do the same thing every day. How often are you just like you can't believe how far you went and how far you've come back? Is it a daily basis? Yeah, pretty much. Like I drive around the streets of Los Angeles and there's really no corner I pass where I can't look over there and think of some crazy shit that happened to me over there. And do you, and how often do you interact with homeless people? They're gone. They're gone. I don't know where they are, man. Like people talk about the homeless crisis in LA and yes, there is one. But I and my friend that you were talking about, the, my friend Natanya, we put together all these, uh, these bags to go give out to homeless people, you know, with like toiletries and things that they need. And the idea was to go to my old spots and hand them out to people I used to know. And we went looking and we can't find any homeless people. So it seems very much like the city uh, with the pandemic came and put everybody up in hotels, like legit hotels, like Best Western and stuff. So I think that's what's going on. Do you think you missed the boat on that? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. I think I'm lucky I got arrested when I did. Because I'd probably be in a hotel still getting high right now if I'm if I was alive. Listen, it's amazing. It's amazing, and uh, I'd love to have you back on the show if you can ever do it. I'd love to come back. It was it was a pleasure talking to you. And listen, we love you out there in LA. You're you're the Dopey Podcast is very well loved out on the West Coast. So please keep it up. Nice. We'll, we'll do our best. Thank you, Sean. I found that talk to be a very special one. I would love to hear what you guys thought of Sean on Dopey. Write us at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Send in an email. Send in a voicemail. I'll send you socks. There's been people out there who have sent in emails and voicemails and have gotten Dopey socks. Also, I have gear. Like, I have merch from uh, DopeyCon. I've got a bunch of hoodies that I'm willing to part with. I think I'm going to do a video on Instagram and you can see what I have. Also, there's some bad news in the Dopey Nation, uh, but I'm going to let him tell you himself. As usual, uh, 
here we go. I'm going to call. My dad is going to finish the show with us, and we're going to call him up right now. Hold on. Just futzing around here. Let's see. Let's see if he answers. Hello? Hey, Dad. Yeah, hold on a minute. Seymour's on the line. Let me tell him I'll call him back. Diabolical Seymour. Be quick. You're You're on the air. My dad is on the other line with Seymour, who he's probably been friends with his whole life, and Seymour and him have this cockamamie fantasy basketball league. But we're going to get into that in a second. Let's just wait for my dad to come back because he has very important news. But uh, now he's fucking around with Seymour, for Christ's sake. Yes, Seymour says you're trying to break the record of moves in fantasy. Listen, listen. I know you have an important announcement to make to the Dopey Nation about you. So tell the Dopey Nation what's happened to you, Dad. Well, I I hope they even hear it. I have COVID, everybody, and I was I was feeling yucky, very very bad. Yucky is a medical term. Now, I really, you've avoided COVID for years and years religiously. What happened? How did you get it? Uh, I think that big wedding. I you think, think uh, so? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't think so? Of course it was the big <laughs> wedding. And how, and how are you feeling now? Uh, well, right now, I'm, I, I, think, I think I'm feeling better today. I, I, actually, um, I actually went outside uh, and listen, I think I'm growing a goatee, but I guess I'll, I'll shave it off. I wasn't, I didn't shave for a few days. Uh, no, I went outside, so I, I think I'm feeling better about the whole thing. You're growing um, a goatee. Nah, I'm going to shave it. I'm going to shave it. And Dopey Nation, um, you need to know that back in the day when my dad was a investigative reporter for the Flushing Tribune, he had a goatee then, too. Yeah, I was an ace, ace reporter. And then I had to shave it in front of you uh, and in front of the family so that you would know it's still me when you, so you could watch it when I was shaving it off. Now, um, now, Dad, I want you to talk about your horrible fantasy basketball league for a second and, uh, and your manipulative friend, Seymour. Why don't you give an update as to what's happening in your horrible basketball league? Well... It seems for the first time in uh, forever, I'm in first place. <laughs> it's never happened before. And my dear friend Seymour thinks that pretty much that I'm going to blow the whole thing and make a ridiculous trade and, uh, and get back to my normal position in third, fourth, or fifth place. But right now, I'm still in first place. And Dolby Nation, uh, guess what? Seymour is in second but David, David is in third place, and he's really hanging in there. I think I'm only a point and a half behind the diabolical menace known as Seymour. Yeah, right. You're yes, you're you're right on. Oh, and and what do you call it? Harden's injured. Davis is in, injured. Butler is injured. Those are all Seymour's guys. Oh, he's does he have Irving too? I don't think so. No. Who who has Irving? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, yeah, he should, maybe he shouldn't play again. Oh, listen, I got to tell the Dopey Nation, and don't interrupt me now. I have to tell the Dopey Nation that they have to get out and vote. It's very, very important that they vote in this election. Very important. When's, I'm not telling wait, them how to on, vote. There's an, there's an election? Oh, give me a break. 
Why don't you get your head together here? Of course there's election Tuesday. There's an election. You can even vote early. All right, maybe I'll vote for the first time in many years. Maybe this will be the first election that I come out and vote. That's important. You really should. It's, that's, that would show that you're, you're uh, on the next step to responsible adulthood. Yes. I, I, I really am on the fence about voting. I haven't voted since 1992 uh, when I voted for, well, for Bill Clinton in 1992. That was the last time. Well, that was the first and last yeah, no, time. This, this is important. This is important for your, your, your daughters and, and Linda and everybody else. It's very important. All right. Well, thank you for popping in. Where are you sitting right now? I'm lying down. So you don't, you don't have access to the newest review? Uh, I saw it. I saw it, actually. Um, Do you have access? Do you have access to this review? Yeah, let me go. Let me get over to the computer. All right. All right. So you got it, Dad? Yes. All right. Let's hear it. This is a good one. All right. This one says my favorite podcast, five stars by Art House Cleaner. Here, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Before you read it, have you noticed that there's been a real slowdown on dopey reviews in general? Absolutely. I mean, that Joey Pepper has been up there for weeks and weeks already, and nobody else came in except this newest one. And the listenership has gone up. So Dopey Nation, if you're out there and you're listening to the show, please leave a review. It's better if it has five stars, and maybe my dad will read the review. And if my dad reads the review, and you hear my dad read the review on the show, and it makes you want a pair of Dopey Socks, Write me an email and I'll send you a pair of dopey socks. What the heck? Anyway, here. So so write a review. Help us out. Put up reviews. Anyway, Dad, read the thing, please. All right. So this was uh, Art House Cleaner. I listen to so many podcasts. This is my favorite. So real, so great. I'm not an addict, but I know many. I know many. The things I learned from David, I don't get that car, car. I don't know what that is. was a great list. You're, you David Carr. David Carr yeah. was um. Oh, it was David Carr's daughter, Erin Lee Carr. At the end of the Erin Lee Carr episode, she reads a list of what David Carr had said of uh, how to have a good life. That was the oh. list. Oh yeah. Okay. All right. And uh, something about you being a smart dude. Hold on. What do you? Uh, what do you? Sk- that's the best part of the review. What are you skipping over that part? For? No, I think I don't. I, it's not. It's not. It's not clear to me what he's writing there. He's saying that I'm a smart dude. And what's that? Far from dopey. Like I'm not like dopey as like an idiot. Far from dopey. Uh, but st- what's oh, wrong I, with you, I, Dad? I think the COVID has addled I, your brain. No, well, I was just wondering why he was making those comments. All right, so he's saying you're a smart dude and you're far from being a dopey one, but still dopey. You're one happy happening dude. Popular popular culture is your thing. That's true. You really know a lot about pop culture. Thanks so much for entertaining, for an entertaining pod. And, oh, her name is Pamela. See, see, I thought it's your friend Pamela. Is it possible that's your friend Pamela? No, no, no. She was just in New York, and she's also suffering from... uh, you know, hip problems and knee problems. And uh, so she she had a hard time walking, I think. 
No, that's not King. That's not her. No. Can I tell you that when you tell me that I I know so much about pop culture, I take that as you insulting me. Why? <laughs> it's a, I think it's a backhanded fucking insult, and I and it reminds me of all of the backhanded insults for so many years, which was probably why I was a heroin addict for so long and a drug addict for even longer. Because it's obvious you think because I know about pop culture and music and film and st- and art and stuff like that that I don't know about politics. So when you say I know about popular culture, it's really an underhanded dig. Correct? No. Correct or no. incorrect? Incorrect. I, I think it's amazing your your font of information on popular cu- culture is is amazing. And it is very, very positive. It's the fact that it should also include, you know, what's going on in the world in terms of, of, uh, of other things, like, you know, the political situation that the United States is in. But it's not taking away your knowledge of pop culture or making or minimizing it. All right, so all right, just, just calm down, just calm down. Let me ask you one quick question, but you sound very sick, so we got to go. The quick yes, do yeah, you I'm, think I'm fading. Do you think you had any part to play in my addiction whatsoever? Any part. Not blame, not responsibility, any part. You wouldn't be here unless my sperm <laughs> cell met your mother's egg cell. Yes, yeah, so that was my contribution. All right, enough of this. You got to get Do you have any good yes. chicken soup in the house? Yeah, well, I already had a quart of it. Yes. You think I should have another quart? Yeah, I think you need another quart. You don't sound good. The Knicks are playing tonight. The Knicks look terrible. Did you see the fucking that last game against Atlanta? Why didn't they trade for DeJounte Murray? They could have given up three picks uh, and and, and and a guard and gotten DeJounte Murray. He is super. He is absolutely super, that guy. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with Randall either. I, I guess... Didn't Knicks I tell playing, you, I, Dad, didn't I tell you that he's historically bad against the Hawks, even at home? Well, tonight, who are they playing tonight? Chicago? No, it? Philadelphia tonight. Oh, so what's he, his, what is he historically against Philadelphia? I think he will be good tonight against Philly. Uh, Look for a good uh, bounce-back Randall game, and I predict the Knicks will win tonight. What do you think? Well, Harden is hurt, but Maxie. Oh, you have Maxie. Hey, you picked. That's a major pick. Major pick. The computer. The computer picked Maxie for me. I have Embiid too. I think he comes back tonight. Really? Yup. Yup. Oh, Oh, that's no good. You may. You may wind up in first place after tonight. I think. I I predict after tonight, I will be in first place. Uh, You need to. You need to get orange juice, and you need to get chicken soup, and um, yeah. and I'll stop blaming you for my drug addiction. But I do think you have some responsibility in there, just a little bit, a little bit of responsibility. All right, everybody. Uh, okay, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles for See, Chris. See, you shirk all of your responsibilities around this thing. It's amazing. You can't, you can't <laughs> admit that you might have played a part. Fucking, it's un- that's how I know you're actually totally responsible for this thing. All right, that's perfect. Thank you. I, I make my case. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Thank you, Dad. I love you. I'm glad you're surviving this COVID thing. And uh, yeah. and and stay strong, everybody. And fucking toodles for Chris.
Yes. All right. Bye bye, everybody. Oh. All right. I'm gonna play this song, but only because uh, I think it's gonna make me look a little bit
It's fucking great song. You like this? I really, really like it. You do? And you know I like... Yeah, you do tell me you didn't like it. Yeah. I'm really sure you can it. relate to the calling your dad part. <laughs> Dude, it's just really good. Like, where did you write... Why'd you write that? I like the lyrics. I hope they can 